Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Hey guys, it's Cece, and today I'm here to do a spoiler-free review. The book that I'm going to be very excitedly reviewing today is The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. This is a new release YA book. It came out on February 28th, and it was fabulous, and I cannot wait to talk about it more. There's something that I want to say about this book, and as far as being a white reader of this book... A lot of the process of reading it is about acknowledging the existence and presence of white privilege. And if you are a white reader going into this book, then you have got to go into it accepting and acknowledging your privilege and then going on from there. Learning and understanding and just listening to the story that the book is telling you. I've obviously already read negative reviews of this book. There aren't many, but they're out there and they are so frustrating and short-sighted and privilege exists. So go into this book knowing that, go into this book acknowledging that and opening yourself and being ready to learn because I just, I get really, really angry at the kind of comments that I see in these negative reviews. This is our world. This is what is happening in it. And you have to acknowledge that. And that is why this book is so incredibly impactful. So that is my little semi-furious note to readers out there. Don't be Haley in this book. Don't do it. Okay? I did want to say I had two teeny tiny issues with the story, the first of which is that there is a character who is slut-shamed pretty frequently throughout the book, and there are a lot of other reasons why she's a character that you question, but it was kind of frustrating that it was always kind of drawn up to how she looked and how she dressed, and that just kind of frustrated me. And the other small thing was that Star has a friend who she really, really likes, and she makes this comment multiple times where she's like, if I wasn't straight, I would totally date her. Oh man, if I wasn't straight. And as a gay woman, that is just kind of like an annoying thread to keep reading. Like, yes, I know, I know that you're straight, and there are other ways of acknowledging how great a person is without emphasizing that. I don't quite have the words for how that made me feel, but it was just a frustration that I had every time I saw that line repeated. But I mean, these were small things in an expansive and beautifully written story. In an incredible novel about police brutality and when to make your voice heard, and the fact that bravery doesn't mean that you have to live without fear. By all accounts, this was a rally cry and a book that I think is going to be sticking around for a long, long 
time. And in the end, I decided to give this book a rating of four and a half out of five stars. So there you go. Those are all of my thoughts about The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. If you weren't planning on picking this book up already, I... I urge you so strongly to go and pick up this book. There's so much to be learned. There's so much good here. I'm excited to see this one stick around for a lot of years after this. Now this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. And I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, March 30th, 2018. So I have been told this is our fourth study session on Angie Thomas's nuclear hit young adult novel, young adult novel, young adult novel the hate you give we're picking up on chapter 10 the audio segment that you heard at the beginning uh that was from a white woman suspected race soldier uh there are lots and lots and lots of whites particularly white women who have done reviews of this book online you can go through and check out some of them that one stuck out to me uh really the final portion of her commentary where she talked about the repeated references where star the main character black female is talking about her attraction to jess uh, one of her white female students at williamson and how her pixie cut is so cute and if she was into girls she would date jess apparently that gets said repeatedly i had already talked about that as being one of the fingerprints of racist involvement in this book if not outright racist ghostwriting this book the fact that it's in the book multiple times that's something that we can look forward to coming up again further heightens my suspicion about the book and i would just add anytime you have that type of enthusiasm where whites are talking about oh yeah reading this book about these niggers drug selling gun toting niggers that is going to make me understand my white privilege. Yeah. I'm going to stop there. We'll go ahead and get to the book. Context of White Supremacy, Gus T. Renegade. Fourth study session, Auntie Thomas, The Hate You Give. Picking up on chapter 10, audio segment number one. Ten. We spend the night at Uncle Carlos's house because the riot started again as soon as the sun went down. Somehow the store got spared. We should go to church and thank God for that. But Mama and I are too tired to sit through less than an hour of anything. Sikani wants to spend another day at Uncle Carlos's. So Sunday morning, we return to Garden Heights without him. Right as we get off the freeway, we're met by a police roadblock. Only one lane of traffic isn't blocked by a patrol car, and officers talk to drivers before letting them pass through. Suddenly it's as if someone grabbed my heart and twisted it. Can we... I swallow. Can we get around them? Doubt it. They probably got these all around the neighborhood. Mama glances over at me and frowns. Munch? You okay? I grab my door handle. They can easily grab their guns 
and leave us like Khalil. All the blood in our bodies pooling on the street for everybody to see. Our mouths wide open. Our eyes staring at the sky, searching for God. Hey, Mama cups my cheek. Hey, look at me. I try to, but my eyes are filled with tears. I'm so sick of being this damn weak. Khalil may have lost his life, but I lost something too. And it pisses me off. It's okay, Mama says. We got this, all right? Close your eyes if you have to. I do. Keep your hands visible. No sudden moves. Only speak when spoken to. The seconds drag by like hours. The officer asks Mama for her ID and proof of insurance. And I beg Black Jesus to get us home, hoping there won't be a gunshot as she searches through her purse. We finally drive off. See, baby, she says, everything's fine. Her words used to have power. If she said it was fine, it was fine. But after you've held two people as they took their last breaths, words like that don't mean shit anymore. I haven't let go of the car door handle when we pull into our driveway. Daddy comes out and knocks on my window. Mama rolls it down for me. There go my girls, he smiles, but it fades into a frown. What's wrong? You about to go somewhere, baby? Mama asks, meaning they'll talk later. Yeah, gotta run to the warehouse and stock up. He taps my shoulder. Hey, wanna hang out with your daddy? I'll get you some ice cream. One of them big fat tubs that'll last about a month. I laugh even though I don't feel like it. Daddy's talented like that. I don't need all that ice cream. I ain't say you needed it. When we get back, we can watch that Harry Potter shit you like so much. No. What? He asks. Daddy, you're the worst person to watch Harry Potter with. The whole time you're talking about. I deepen my voice. Why don't they shoot that nigga Voldemort? Hey. It don't make sense that in all them movies and books, nobody thought to shoot him. If it's not that, Mama says, you're giving your Harry Potter is about gangs theory. It is, he says. Okay, so it is a good theory. Daddy claims the Hogwarts houses are really gangs. They have their own colors, their own hideouts, and they're always riding for each other, like gangs. Harry, Ron, and Hermione never snitch on one another, just like gangbangers. Death Eaters even have matching tattoos. And look at Voldemort. They're scared to say his name, really. That he-who-must-not-be-named stuff is like giving him a street name. That's some gangbanging shit right there. Y'all know that make a lot of sense, Daddy says. Just because they was in England don't mean they wasn't gangbanging. He looks at me. So you down to hang with your old man today, or what? I'm always down to hang out with him. We roll through the streets, Tupac blasting through the subwoofers. He's rapping about keeping your head up, and Daddy glances at me as he raps along, like he's telling me the same thing Tupac is. 
I know you're fed up, baby, he nudges my chin, but keep your head up. He sings with the chorus about how things will get easier. And I don't know if I want to cry because that's really speaking to me right now, or crack up because Daddy's singing is so horrible. Daddy says, that was a deep dude right there, real deep. They don't make rappers like that no more. You're showing your age, Daddy. Whatever, it's the truth. Rappers nowadays only care about money, hoes, and clothes. Showing your age, I whisper. Pac rapped about that stuff too, yeah. But he also cared about uplifting black people, says Daddy. Like he took the word nigger and gave it a whole new meaning. Never ignorant getting goals accomplished. And he said thug life meant the hate you give little infants. F's everybody. I censor myself. This is my daddy I'm talking to, you know. You know about that? Yeah. Khalil told me what he thought it means. We were listening to Tupac right before, you know. I ain't. So what do you think it means? You don't know? I ask. I know. I want to hear what you think. Here he goes. Picking my brain. Khalil said it's about what society feeds us as youth and how it comes back and bites them later, I say. I think it's about more than youth, though. I think it's about us, period. Us who? He asks. Black people, minorities, poor people, everybody at the bottom in society. The oppressed, says Daddy. Yeah, we're the ones who get the short end of the stick, but we're the ones they fear the most. That's why the government targeted the Black Panthers, right? Because they were scared of the Panthers. Uh-huh, Daddy says. The Panthers educated and empowered the people. That tactic of empowering the oppressed goes even further back than the Panthers, though. Name one. Is he serious? He always makes me think. This one takes me a second. The Slave Rebellion of 1831, I say. Nat Turner empowered and educated other slaves, and it led to one of the biggest slave revolts in history. Aight, aight, you on it. He gives me dap. So what's the hate they're giving the little infants in today's society? Racism? You gotta get a little more detail than that. Think about Khalil and his whole situation before he died. He was a drug dealer. It hurts to say that. And possibly a gang member. Why was he a drug dealer? Why are so many people in our neighborhood drug dealers? I remember what Khalil said. He got tired of choosing between lights and food. They need money. I say, and they don't have a lot of other ways to get it. Right. Lack of opportunities, Daddy says. Corporate America don't bring jobs to our communities, and they damn sure ain't quick to hire us. Then, shit, even if you do have a high school diploma, so many of the schools in our neighborhoods don't prepare us well enough. That's why when your mama talked about sending you and your brothers to Williamson, I agreed. 
Our schools don't get the resources to equip you like Williamson does. It's easier to find some crack than it is to find a good school around here. Now think about this, he says. How did the drugs even get in our neighborhood? This is a multi-billion dollar industry we talking about, baby. That shit is flown into our communities, but I don't know anybody with a private jet. Do you? No. Exactly. Drugs come from somewhere, and they're destroying our community, he says. You got folks like Brenda, who think they need them to survive. And then you got the Khalils, who think they need to sell them to survive. The Brendas can't get jobs unless they're clean, and they can't pay for rehab unless they got jobs. When the Khalils get arrested for selling drugs, they either spend most of their life in prison, another billion-dollar industry, or they have a hard time getting a real job and probably start selling drugs again. That's the hate they're giving us, baby. A system designed against us. That's thug life. I hear you. But Khalil didn't have to sell drugs, I say. You stop doing it. True, but unless you're in his shoes, don't judge him. It's easier to fall into that life than it is to stay out of it, especially in a situation like his. Now, one more question. Really? Damn, he's messed with my head enough. Yeah. Really? He mocks in a high voice. I don't even sound like that. After everything I've said, how does thug life apply to the protests and the riots? I have to think about that one for a minute. Everybody's pissed because 115 hasn't been charged, I say. But also because he's not the first one to do something like this and get away with it. It's been happening, and people will keep rioting until it changes. So... I guess the system's still giving hate, and everybody's still getting fucked? Daddy laughs and gives me dap. My girl, watch your mouth. But yeah, that's about right. And we won't stop getting fucked till it changes. That's the key. It's got to change. A lump forms in my throat as the truth hits me hard. That's why people are speaking out, huh? because it won't change if we don't say something. Exactly. We can't be silent. So I can't be silent. Daddy stills. He looks at me. I see the fight in his eyes. I matter more to him than a movement. I'm his baby. And I'll always be his baby. And if being silent means I'm safe, He's all for it. This is bigger than me and Khalil, though. This is about us, with a capital U, everybody who looks like us, feels like us, and is experiencing this pain with us, despite not knowing me or Khalil. My silence isn't helping us. Daddy fixes his gaze on the road again. He nods. Yeah. Can't be silent. The trip to the warehouse is hell. 
You got all these people pushing big flatbeds around, and them things are hard to push as it is, and you gotta maneuver it while it's stacked with stuff. By the time we leave, I feel like Black Jesus snatched me from the depths of hell. Daddy does get me ice cream, though. Buying the stuff is only the first step. We unload it at the store, put it on the shelves, and we scratch that. I put price stickers on all those bags of chips, cookies, and candies. I should have thought about that before I agreed to hang out with Daddy. While I do the hard work, he pays bills in his office. I'm putting stickers on the hot fries when somebody knocks on the front door. We're closed! I yell without looking. We have a sign. Can't they read? Obviously not. They knock again. Daddy appears in the doorway of his office. We closed! Another knock. Daddy disappears into his office and returns with his Glock. He's not supposed to carry it since he's a felon. But he says that technically he doesn't carry it. He keeps it in his office. He looks out at the person on the other side of the door. What you want? I'm hungry, a guy says. Can I buy something? Daddy unlocks the door and holds it open. You got five minutes. Thanks, Devante says as he comes in. His afro puff has become a full-blown afro. He has this wild look about him, and I don't mean because of his hair, but like in his eyes. They're puffy and red and darting around. He barely gives me a nod when he passes. Daddy waits at the cash register with his piece. Devante glances outside. He looks at the chips. Fritos, Cheetos, or Dorit. His voice trails off as he glances again. He notices me watching him and looks at the chips. Doritos. Your five minutes getting shorter, Daddy says. Damn, man, I right. Devante grabs a bag of Fritos. Can I get something to drink? Hurry up. Devante goes to the refrigerators. I join Daddy at the cash register. It's so obvious something is up. Devante keeps stretching his neck to look outside. His five minutes pass at least three times. It doesn't take anybody that long to choose between Coke, Pepsi, or Fago. I'm sorry, but it doesn't. Hi, Vante. Daddy motions him to the cash register. You trying to get the nerve to stick me up, or you running from somebody? Hell no, nah, I ain't trying to stick you up. He takes out a wad of money and sets it on the counter. I'm paid, and I'm a king. I don't run from no damn body. No, you hide in stores, I say. He glares at me, but Daddy tells him, she right. You hiding from somebody. Kings or GDs? It's not those GDs from the park, is it? I ask. Why don't you mind your business? He snaps. You came in my daddy's business, so I am minding my business. Hey, Daddy says. But for real, who you hiding from? Devante stares at his scuffed-up chucks that are beyond the help of my cleaning kit. King, he mumbles. Kings? Or king, Daddy asks. King, Devante repeats louder. He wants me to handle the dudes that killed my brother. 
I'm not trying to have that on me, though. Yeah, I heard about Dalvin, Daddy says. I'm sorry. What happened? We were at Big D's party, and some GDs stepped to him. They got into it, and one of them cowards shot him in the back. Oh, damn. That was the same party Khalil and I were at. Those were the gunshots that made us leave. Big man, how'd you get out the game? Devante asks. Daddy strokes his goatee, studying Devante. The hard way, he eventually says. My daddy was a king lord, Adonis Carter, a straight up OG. Yo, Devante says, that's your pops, Big Don? Yup, biggest drug dealer this city ever seen. Yo, man, that's crazy. Devante's seriously fangirling right now. I heard he had cops working for him and everything. He pulled in big money. I heard my granddaddy was so busy pulling in big money that he didn't have time for daddy. There are lots of pictures of daddy when he was younger, wearing mink coats, playing with expensive toys, flashing jewelry, and Grandpa Don isn't in any of the pictures. Probably so, daddy says. I wouldn't know too much about that. He went to prison when I was eight. Been there ever since. I'm his only child, his son. Everybody expected me to pick up where he left off. I became a king lord when I was 12. Shit, that was the only way to survive. Somebody was always coming at me because of my pops. But if I was a king lord, I had folks to watch my back. Kinging became my life. I was down to die for it, say the word. He glances at me. Then I became a daddy, and I realized that King Lord shit wasn't worth dying for. I wanted out. But you know how the game work. It ain't as easy as saying you done. King was the crown, and he was my boy. But he couldn't let me out like that. I was making good money, too. And it was honestly hard to consider walking away from it. Yeah. King says you wanted the best D-boys he ever knew, Devante says. Daddy shrugs. I got it from my pops. But really, I was only good because I never got caught. One day, me and King took a trip to do a pickup, and we got busted. Cops wanted to know who the weapons belonged to. King had two strikes, and that charge would have meant life. I didn't have a record, so I took the charge and got a few years in probation. Loyal like a mother. Those were the hardest three years of my life. Growing up, I was pissed at my daddy for going to prison and leaving me. And there I was, in the same prison as him, missing out on my baby's lives. Devante's eyebrows meet. You were in prison with your pops? Daddy nods. All my life, people made him sound like a real king, you know what I'm saying? A legend. But he was a weak old man regretting the time he missed with me. Realest thing he ever told me was, don't repeat my mistakes. Daddy looks at me again. And I was doing that. I missed first days of school, all that. Had my baby wanting to call somebody else daddy because I wasn't there. I look away. He knows how close Uncle Carlos and I became. I was officially done with the King Lord shit, drug shit, all of it.
Daddy says. And since I took that charge, King agreed to let me out. It made those three years worth it. Devante's eyes dim like they do when he talks about his brother. You had to go to prison to get out? I'm the exception, not the rule, Daddy says. When people say it's for life, it's for life. You gotta be willing to die in it or die for it. You want out? I don't want to go to prison. He didn't ask you that, I say. He asked if you wanted out. Devante is quiet for a long time. He looks up at Daddy and says, I just want to be alive, man. Daddy strokes his goatee. He sighs. I, I'll help you. But I promise, you go back to slinging or banging. You wish King would have got you when I'm done. You go to school? Yeah. What your grades look like? Daddy asks. He shrugs. What the hell is this? Daddy imitates Devante's shrug. You know what grades you get, so what kind? I mean, I get A's and B's and shit, Devante says. I ain't dumb. All right, good. We gonna make sure you stay in school, too. Man, I can't go back to Garden High, Devante says. All them king lords up in there, you know that's a death wish, right? I ain't say you was going there. We'll figure something out. In the meantime, you can work here in the store. You been staying home at night? Nah. King got his boys watching for me over there. Of course he do. Daddy mumbles. We'll figure something out with that, too. Star, show him how to do the price stickers. You're really hiring him just like that? I ask. Whose store is this, Star? Yours, but... Nuff said. Show him how to do the price stickers. Devante snickers. I want to punch him in his throat. Come on, I mumble. We sit cross-legged in the chip aisle. Daddy locks the front door and goes back in his office. I grab a jumbo bag of hot Cheetos and slap a 99-cent sticker on them. You're supposed to show me how to do it, Devante says. I am showing you. Watch. I grab another bag. He leans real close over my shoulder. Too close. Breathing in my ear and shit. I move my head and look at him. Do you mind? What's your problem with me? He asks. You caught an attitude yesterday, soon as I walked up. I ain't did nothing to you. I put a sticker on some Doritos. No, but you did it to Danasia and Kenya, and who knows how many other girls in Garden Heights. Hold up. I ain't do nothing to Kenya. You asked for her number, didn't you? Even though you're with Danasia. I'm not with Danasia. I just danced with her at that party, he says. She the one who wanted to act like she was my girlfriend and got mad because I was talking to Kenya. If I wouldn't have been dealing with them, I could have... He swallows. I could have helped Dalvin. By the time I got to him, he was on the floor bleeding. All I could do was hold him. I see myself sitting in a pool of blood, too, and try to tell him it would be okay, even though you knew there was no chance in hell it would be. We go quiet. 
I get one of those weird deja vu moments, though. I see myself sitting cross-legged like I am now, but I'm showing Khalil how to do the price stickers. We couldn't help Khalil with his situation before he died. Maybe we can help Devante. I hand him a bag of hot fries. I'm only going to explain how to use this price gun one time, and you better pay attention. He grins. My attention's all yours, little mama. Later, when I'm supposed to be asleep, my mom tells my dad in the hallway, So he's hiding from King? And you think he should hide here? Devante. Apparently, Daddy couldn't figure it out and decided that Devante should stay with us. Daddy dropped the two of us off a couple of hours ago before heading back to the store to protect it from the rioters. He just got back. He said our house is the one place King won't look for Devante. I had to do something, Daddy says. I understand that, and I know you think this is your do-over with Khalil. It ain't like that. Yeah, it is, she says softly. I get it, baby. I have a ton of regrets regarding Khalil myself. But this... This is dangerous for our family. It's just for now. Devante can't stay in Garden Heights. This neighborhood ain't good for him. Wait, it's not good for him, but it's fine for our kids? Come on, Lisa, it's late. I'm not trying to hear this right now. I've been at the store all night. And I've been up all night, worried about you. Worried about my babies being in this neighborhood. They fine. They ain't involved in none of that banging shit. Mama scoffs. Yeah, so fine that I have to drive almost an hour to get them to a decent school. And God forbid Sakani wants to play outside. I gotta drive to my brother's house, where I don't have to worry about him getting shot like his sister's best friend did. It's messed up that she could mean either Khalil or Natasha. A'ight, let's say we move, Daddy said. Then what? We just like all the other sellouts who leave and turn their backs on the neighborhood. We can change stuff around here, but instead we run? That's what you want to teach our kids? I want my kids to enjoy life. I get it, Maverick. You want to help your people out. I do, too. That's why I bust my butt every day at that clinic. But moving out of the neighborhood won't mean you're not real. And it won't mean you can't help this community. You need to figure out what's more important, your family or Garden Heights. I've already made my choice. What you saying? I'm saying I'll do what I got to do for my babies. There are footsteps. Then a door closes. I stay up most of the night wondering what that means for them, us. Okay, yeah, they've talked about moving before but they weren't arguing about it like this until after Khalil died. If they break up, it'll be one more thing 115 takes from me. 11. Monday morning. I know something is up when I first step into Williamson. Folks are quiet as hell. Well, whispering, really, in little huddles in the halls in the atrium, like they're discussing plays during a basketball game. 
Haley and Maya find me before I find them. Did you get the text? Haley asks. That's the first thing she says. No hey or anything. I still don't have my phone, so I'm like, what text? She shows me hers. There's a big group text with about a hundred names on it. Haley's older brother Remy sent out the first message. Protesting today at first period. Then curly-haired, dimpled Luke replied, Hell yeah, free day, I'm game. And Remy came back with, That's the point, dumbass. It's like somebody hit a pause button on my heart. They're protesting for Khalil? Yeah, Haley says, all giddy and shit. Perfect timing, too. I so did not study for that English exam. This is, like, the first time Remy actually came up with a good idea to get out of class. I mean, it's kind of messed up that we're protesting a drug dealer's death. But all my Williamson rules go out the door, and Star from Garden Heights shows up. What the fuck that got to do with it? Their mouths open into perfectly shaped O's. Like, I mean... If he was a drug dealer, Haley says, that explains why he got killed even though he wasn't doing shit. So it's cool he got killed? But I thought you were protesting it. We are. God. Lighten up, Star, she says. I thought you'd be all over this, considering your obsession on Tumblr lately. You know what? I say. One second from really going off. Leave me alone. Have fun in your little protest. I want to fight every person I pass, Floyd Mayweather style. They're so damn excited about getting a day off. Khalil's in a grave. He can't get a day off from that shit. I live it every single day, too. In class, I toss my backpack on the floor and throw myself into my seat. When Haley and Maya come in, I give them a stank eye and silently dare them to say shit to me. I'm breaking all of my Williamson star rules with zero fucks to give. Chris gets there before the bell rings, headphones draped around his neck. He comes down my aisle and squeezes my nose going, honk, honk, because for some reason it's hilarious to him. Usually I laugh and swat at him, but today, yeah, I'm not in the mood. I just swat. Kind of hard, too. He goes, ow, and gives his hand a quick shake. What's wrong with you? I don't respond. If I open my mouth, I'll explode. He crouches beside my desk and shakes my thigh. Star? You okay? Our teacher, balding, stumpy Mr. Warren, clears his throat. Mr. Bryant, my class is not the love connection. Please have a seat. Chris slides into the desk next to mine. What's wrong with her? He whispers to Haley. She plays dumb and says, Dunno. Mr. Warren tells us to take out our MacBooks and begins the lesson on British literature. Not even five minutes in, someone says, Justice for Khalil. Justice for Khalil, the others chant. Justice for Khalil. Mr. Warren tells them to stop, 
but they get louder and pound their fists on the desks. I want to puke and scream and cry. My classmates stampede toward the door. Maya's the last one out. She glances back at me, then at Haley, who motions her to come on. Maya follows her out. I think I'm done following Haley. In the hall, chants for Khalil go off like sirens. Unlike Haley, some of them may not care that he was a drug dealer. They might be almost as upset as I am. But since I know why Remy started this protest, I stay in my seat. Chris does too for some reason. His desk scrapes the floor as it scoots closer to mine until they touch. He brushes my tears with his thumb. You knew him, didn't you? He says. I nod. Oh, says Mr. Warren. I am so sorry, Star. You don't have to. You can call your parents, you know. I wipe my face. The last thing I want is Mama making a fuss because I can't handle all this. Worse, I don't want to be unable to handle it. Can you continue with the lesson, sir? I ask. The distraction would be nice. He smiles sadly and does as I ask. For the rest of the day, sometimes Chris and I are the only ones in our classes. Sometimes one or two other people join us. People go out of their way to tell me they think Khalil's death is bullshit, but that Remy's reason for protesting is bullshit, too. I mean, this sophomore girl comes up to me in the hall and explains that she supports the cause, but decided to go back to class after she heard why they were really protesting. They act like I'm the official representative of the black race, and they owe me an explanation. I think I understand, though. If I sit out a protest, I'm making a statement. But if they sit out a protest, they look racist. At lunch, Chris and I head to our table near the vending machines. Jess, with her perfect pixie cut, is the only one there, eating cheese fries and reading her phone. Hey? I ask, more than say. I'm surprised she's here. Sup? She nods. Have a seat. As you can see, there's plenty of room. I sit beside her and Chris sits on the other side of me. Jess and I have played basketball together for three years and she's put her head on my shoulder for two of them, but I'm ashamed to admit I don't know much about her. I do know she's a senior. Her parents are attorneys and she works at a bookstore. I didn't know that she'd skipped the protest. I guess I'm staring at her hard because she says, I don't use dead people to get out of class. If I wasn't straight, I would totally date her for saying that. This time, I rest my head on her shoulder. She pats my hair and says, White people do stupid shit sometimes. Jess is white. Seven and Layla join us with their trays. Seven holds his fist out to me. I bump it. Seven, Jess says, and they fist bump too. I had no idea they were cool like that. I take it we're protesting the get-out-of-class protest? Yup, Seven says, protesting the get-out-of-class protest. 
Seven and I get Sakani after school, and he won't shut up about the news cameras he saw from his classroom window, because he's Sakani, and he came into this world looking for a camera. I have too many selfies of him on my phone giving the light-skinned face. His eyes squinted and eyebrows raised. Are y'all gonna be on the news? He asks. Nah, says Seven. Don't need to be. We could go home, lock the door, and fight over the TV like we always do. Or we could help Daddy at the store. We go to the store. Daddy stands in the doorway watching a reporter and camera operator set up in front of Mr. Lewis's shop. Of course, when Sikani sees the camera, he says, Oh, I want to be on TV. Shut up, I say. No, you don't. Yes, I do. You don't know what I want. The car stops, and Sikani pushes my seat forward, sending my chin into the dashboard as he jumps out. Daddy, I want to be on TV. I rub my chin. His hyper butt is going to kill me one day. Daddy holds Sikani by the shoulders. Calm down, man. You're not going to be on TV. What's going on? Seven asks when we get out. Some cops got jumped around the corner, Daddy says, one arm around Sakani's chest to keep him still. Jumped? I say. Yeah. They pulled them out their patrol car and stomped them. Gray boys. The code name for King Lords. Damn. I heard what happened at y'all's school, Daddy says. Everything cool? Yeah. I give the easy answer. We're good. Mr. Lewis adjusts his clothes and runs a hand over his afro. The reporter says something, and he lets out a belly-jiggling laugh. What this fool about to say? Daddy wonders. We go live in five, says the camera operator. And all I can think is, please don't put Mr. Lewis on live TV. Four, three, two, one. That's right, Joe, the reporter says. I'm here with Mr. Cedric Lewis, Jr., who witnessed the incident involving the officers today. Can you tell us what you saw, Mr. Lewis? He ain't witnessed nothing, Daddy tells us. Was in his shop the whole time. I told him what happened. I sure can, Mr. Lewis says. Them boys pulled those officers out their car. They weren't doing nothing either. Just sitting there and got beat like dogs. Ridiculous, you hear me? Redamn-diculous. Somebody's gonna turn Mr. Lewis into a meme. He's making a fool out of himself and doesn't even know it. Do you think that it was retaliation for the Khalil Harris case? The reporter asks. I sure do. Which is stupid. These thugs been terrorizing Garden Heights for years. How they gonna get mad now? What, cause they didn't kill him themselves? The president and all of them searching for terrorists. But I'll name one right now they can come get. Don't do it, Mr. Lewis, Daddy prays. Don't do it. Of course he does. His name King. And he lived right here in Garden Heights. Probably the biggest drug dealer in the city. He over that King Lord's gang. Come get him if you want to get somebody. Wasn't nobody but his boys who did that to them cops anyway. We sick of this. 
Somebody march about that. Daddy covers Sakani's ears. Every cuss word that follows equals a dollar in Sakani's jar if he hears it. Shit. Daddy hisses. Shit, 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 this mother... He snitched, says Seven. On live TV, I add. Daddy keeps saying, shit, shit, shit. Do you think that the curfew the mayor announced today will prevent incidents like this? The reporter asks Mr. Lewis. I look at Daddy. What curfew? He takes his hands off Sakani's ears. Every business in Garden Heights got to close by nine, and nobody can be in the streets after ten. Lights out. Like in prison. So you'll be home tonight, Daddy? Sakani asks. Daddy smiles and pulls him closer. Yeah, man. After you do your homework, I can show you a thing or two on Madden. The reporter wraps up her interview. Daddy waits until she and the camera operator leave, and then goes over to Mr. Lewis. You crazy? He asks. What? Because I told the truth? Mr. Lewis says. Man, you can't be going on live TV snitching like that. You a dead man walking. You know that, right? I ain't scared of that nigga, Mr. Lewis says real loud for everybody to hear. You scared of him? No, nah, but I know how the game work. I'm too old for games. You ought to be too. Mr. Lewis, listen. Now, you listen here, boy. I fought a war, came back and fought one here. See this? He lifts up his pants leg, revealing a plaid sock over a prosthetic. Lost it in the war. This right here? He lifts his shirt to his underarm. There's a thin pink scar stretching from his back to his swollen belly. Got it after some white boys cut me because I drank from their fountain. He lets his shirt fall down. I done faced a whole lot worse than some so-called king. Ain't nothing he can do but kill me. And if that's how I gotta go for speaking the truth, that's how I gotta go. You don't get it, Daddy says. Yeah, I do. Hell, I get you. Walking around here claiming you ain't a gangster no more. Claiming you trying to change stuff, but still following all of that don't snitch mess. And you teaching them kids the same thing, ain't you? King's still controlling your dumb ass. And you're too stupid to realize it. Stupid? How you gonna call me stupid when you the one snitching on live TV? A familiar whoop-whoop sound alarms us. Oh, God. The patrol car with flashing lights cruises down the street. It stops next to Daddy and Mr. Lewis. Two officers get out, one black, one white. Their hands linger too close to the guns at their waists. No, no, no. We got a problem here? The black one asks, looking squarely at Daddy. He's bald, just like Daddy, but older, taller, bigger. No, sir, officer, Daddy says. His hands that were once in his jeans pockets are visible at his sides. You sure about that? The younger white one asks. It didn't seem that way to us. We were just talking, officers. Mr. Lewis says, much softer than he was minutes ago. His hands are at his sides, too. His parents must have had the talk with him when he was 12. 
To me, it looks like this young man was harassing you, sir, the black one says, still looking at Daddy. He hasn't looked at Mr. Lewis yet. I wonder if it's because Mr. Lewis isn't wearing an NWA t-shirt, or because there aren't tattoos all on his arms, or because he's not wearing somewhat baggy jeans and a backwards cap. You got some ID on you? The black cop asked Daddy. Sir, I was about to go back to my store. I said, do you have some ID on you? My hands shake. Breakfast, lunch, and everything else churns in my stomach, ready to come back up my throat. They're going to take Daddy from me. What's going on? I turn around. Tim, Mr. Rubin's nephew, walks over to us. People have stopped on the sidewalk across the street. I'm going to reach for my ID. Daddy says, it's in my back pocket, right? Daddy, I say. Daddy keeps his eyes on the officer. Y'all go in the store, right? It's okay. We don't move, though. Daddy's hand slowly goes to his back pocket, and I look from his hands to theirs, watching to see if they're going to make a move for their guns. Daddy removes his wallet the leather one I bought for him for Father's Day with his initials embossed on it. He shows it to them. See, my ID is in here. His voice has never sounded so small. The black officer takes the wallet and opens it. Oh, he says, Maverick Carter. He exchanges a look with his partner. Both of them look at me. My heart stops. They've realized I'm the witness. There must be a file that lists my parents' names on it, or the detectives blabbed, and now everyone at the station knows our names, or they could have gotten it from Uncle Carlos somehow. I don't know how it happened, but it happened. And if something happens to Daddy... The black officer looks at him. Get on the ground, hands behind your back. But on the ground, face down, he yells. Now! Daddy looks at us. His expression apologizes for the fact that we have to see this. He gets down on one knee and lowers himself to the ground, face down. His hands go behind his back and his fingers interlock. Where's that camera operator now? Why can't this be on the news? Now, wait a minute, officer, Mr. Lewis says. Me and him were just talking. Sir, go inside, the white cop tells him. But he didn't do anything, Seven says. Boy, go inside, the black cop says. No, that's my father, and... Seven! Daddy yells. Even though he's lying on the concrete, there's enough authority in his voice to make Seven shut up. The black officer checks Daddy while his partner glances around at all of the onlookers. There's quite a few of us now. Ms. Yvette and a couple of her clients stand in her doorway, towels around the client's shoulders. A car has stopped in the street, Everyone go about your own business, the white one says. 
No, sir, says Tim. This is our business. The black cop keeps his knee on Daddy's back as he searches him. He pats him down once, twice, three times, just like 115 did Khalil. Nothing. Larry, the white cop says. The black one, who must be Larry, looks up at him, then at all the people who have gathered around. Larry takes his knee off Daddy's back and stands. Get up, he says. Slowly, Daddy gets to his feet. Larry glances at me. Bile pools in my mouth. He turns to Daddy and says, I'm keeping an eye on you, boy. Remember that. Daddy's jaw looks rock hard. The cops drive off. The car that had stopped in the street leaves, and all of the onlookers go on about their business. One person hollers out, It's all right, Maverick! Daddy looks at the sky and blinks the way I do when I don't want to cry. He clenches and unclenches his hands. Mr. Lewis touches his back. Come on, son. He guides Daddy our way. But they pass us and go into the store. Tim follows them. Why did they do Daddy like that? Sakani asks softly. He looks at me and Seven with tears in his eyes. Seven wraps an arm around him. I don't know, man. I know. I go in the store. Devante leans against a broom near the cash register, wearing one of those ugly green aprons Daddy tries to make me and Seven wear when we work in the store. There's a pang in my chest. Khalil wore one, too. Devante's talking to Kenya as she holds a basket full of groceries. When the bell on the door clangs behind me, both of them look my way. Yo, what happened? Devante asks. Was that the cops outside? Says Kenya. From here I see Mr. Lewis and Tim standing in the doorway of Daddy's office. He must be in there. Yeah, I answer Kenya, heading toward the back. Kenya and Devante follow me, asking about 50 million questions that I don't have time to answer. Papers are scattered all on the office floor. Daddy's hunched over his desk, his back moving up and down with each heavy breath. He pounds the desk. Fuck! Daddy once told me there's a rage passed down to every black man from his ancestors, born the moment they couldn't stop the slave masters from hurting their families. Daddy also said there's nothing more dangerous than when that rage is activated. Let it out, son. Mr. Lewis tells him. Fuck them pigs, man, Tim says. They only did that shit because they know about Star. Wait, what? Daddy glances over his shoulder. His eyes are puffy and wet, like he's been crying. The hell you talking about, Tim? One of the homeboys saw you, Lisa, and your baby girl getting out in ambulance at the crime scene that night, Tim says. Word spread around the neighborhood, and folks think she's the witness they've been talking about on the news. Oh, shit. Star, 
Go ring Kenya up, Daddy says. Vante, finish them floors. I head for the cash register, passing Seven and Sakani. The neighborhood knows. I ring Kenya up, my stomach knotted the whole time. If the neighborhood knows, it won't be long until people outside of Garden Heights know. And then what? You rang that up twice, Kenya says. Huh? The milk. You rang it up twice, Star. Oh. I cancel one of the milks and put the carton into a bag. Kenya's probably cooking for herself in Lyric tonight. She does that sometimes. I ring up the rest of her stuff, take her money, and hand her the change. She stares at me a second, then says, Were you really the one with him? My throat is thick. Does it matter? Yeah, it matters. Why you keeping quiet about it? Like you hiding or something? Don't say it that way. But it is that way, right? I sigh. Kenya, stop. You don't understand, all right? Kenya folds her arms. What's to understand? A lot! I don't mean to yell, but damn, I can't go around telling people that shit! Why not? Because! You ain't see what the cops just did to my dad? Because they know I'm the witness? So you gonna let the police stop you from speaking out for Khalil? I thought you cared about him way more than that. I do. I care more than she may ever know. I already talked to the cops, Kenya. Nothing happened. What else am I supposed to do? Go on TV or something, I don't know, she says. Tell everybody what really happened that night. They're not even giving his side of the story. You're letting them trash talk him. Excuse, how the hell am I letting them do anything? You hear all the stuff they're saying about him on the news, calling him a thug and stuff, and you know that ain't Khalil. I bet if he was one of your private school friends, you'd be all on TV defending him and shit. Are you for real? Hell yeah, she says. You dropped him for them bougie-ass kids, and you know it. You probably would have dropped me if I didn't come around because of my brother. That's not true. You sure? I'm not. Kenya shakes her head. Fucked up part about this? The Khalil I know would have jumped on TV in a hot second and told everybody what happened that night if it meant defending you. And you can't do the same for him. It's a verbal slap. The worst kind, too, because it's the truth. Kenya gets her bags. I'm just saying, Star, if I could change what happens at my house with my mama and daddy, I would. Here you are, with a chance to help change what happens in our whole neighborhood. And you staying quiet, like a coward. Kenya leaves. Tim and Mr. Lewis aren't far behind her. Tim gives me the black power fist on his way out. I don't deserve it, though. I head to Daddy's office, Seven standing in the doorway, and Daddy sitting on his desk. Sikani's next to him, nodding along to whatever Daddy's saying, but looking sad. Reminds me of the time Daddy and Mama had the talk with me. 
Guess Daddy decided not to wait until Sikani's twelve. Daddy sees me. Sev, go cover the cash register. Take Sikani with you. By time he learned. Aw, oh, man, Sikani groans. Don't blame him. The more you learn to do at the store, the more you're expected to do at the store. Daddy pats the now-empty spot beside him on the desk. I hop up on it. His office has just enough space for the desk and a file cabinet. Framed photographs crowd the walls, like the one of him and Mama at the courthouse the day they got married. Her belly, a.k.a. me, big and round. Pictures of me and my brothers as babies. And this one picture from about seven years ago, when my parents took the three of us to the mall for one of those J.C. Penney family portraits. They dressed alike in baseball jerseys, baggy jeans, and Timberlands. Tacky. You aight? Daddy asks. Are you? I will be, he says. Just hate that you and your brothers had to see that shit. They only did it because of me. Nah, baby. They started that before they knew about you. But that didn't help. I stare at my jays as I kick my feet back and forth. Kenya called me a coward for not speaking out. She didn't mean it. She going through a lot, that's all. King throwing Aisha around like a rag doll every single night. But she's right. My voice cracks. I'm this close to crying. I am a coward. After seeing what they did to you, I don't want to say shit now. Hey. Daddy takes my chin, so I have no choice but to look at him. Don't fall for that trap. That's what they want. If you don't want to speak out, that's up to you. But don't let it be because you're scared of them. Who do I tell you that you have to fear? Nobody but God and you and Mama. Especially Mama when she's extremely pissed. He chuckles. Yeah. The list ends there. You ain't got nothing or nobody else to fear. You see this? He rolls up his shirt sleeve, revealing the tattoo of my baby picture on his upper arm. What does it say at the bottom? Something to live for, something to die for, I say, without really looking. I've seen it my whole life. Exactly. You and your brothers are something to live for and something to die for. And I'll do whatever I gotta do to protect you. He kisses my forehead. If you're ready to talk, baby, talk. I got your back. Context of white supremacy. That is the first audio segment. Uh, Angie Thomas, The Hate You Give. We just finished chapter 11. We will pick up on chapter 12 for the second audio segment. If you would like to participate, if you have any questions, commentary, again, if we have uh, any non-white students, black students who read this book either in class or if you read it personally, would be great to hear your thoughts on the books, uh, on the book. If we have uh, any listeners who are really enjoying this book, who think that this is constructive material for black children, particularly uh, to read, would love to hear your perspective uh, and detail 
Uh, dial in the number 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If you want to join in the conversation, but you do not want to use your phone, you can use the free HD line, uh, the free vote line. Excuse me. It's linked at Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, if you need the address, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. Uh, that address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. When you put in that address, uh, it will will just look on the left of the screen. You'll see a link for the free vote line. When you click it, it will open a small window on your screen. The first line is a drop down menu. Select the number that I just gave out. Again, it's 641-715-3640. Next line, it will ask for the code. That code again, 564943. Final line, it will ask for a name. You can put in your real name, nickname. Uh, you can press random keys if you want, whatever you're comfortable with. Once you get all that information entered, click the green button at the bottom. It will connect you to the broadcast, and you should be able to hear us live. Uh, it's the same procedure if you would like to participate. You will see the dial pad on your screen. Press star 61. And I will see your hand on the switchboard. We will get you on the line. I did want to ask folks if they had any thoughts on the repeated invocations of Black Jesus. Uh, we've had a lot of the books that we've read over the years on the book club. Christianity has come in in a number of different ways. Uh, this might be the first time I'm kind of thinking of Spook Who Sat by the Door, but I don't I don't recall Sam Greenlee having Black Jesus invoked specifically in the spook who sat by the door. But anyway, if folks have thoughts on that, that would be great. Uh, if we have any people who are really enjoying this book and think that this is constructive reading material for black children, I would be especially interested in your perspective. All the other folks, if you dialed in, if you have commentary, questions, thoughts, uh, lines should be open. Uh, feel free to share a word. Have you heard? May I be heard? Heard both of you. Right on. Um, thank you so much. Um, this is Red in Nevada, and um, thank you for taking my call. I'll try to make this as quick as possible. I haven't been able to, I'm trying to catch up, but um, I guess I just wanted to just make some comments from last week and then uh, start with this um, segment as well. I do agree with um, a comment that uh, Thomas from New York made about the whole Oreoing of um, like the anti-Black violence and then maybe um, violence made by a white person, and then going back to more um, black on black or anti-black violence, whatever. Um, it seems like it's definitely a reoccurring um, theme throughout the book. Um, also, I, I also agree with the whole um, ghost writing thing, and actually um, with the fact that they keep bringing up black Jesus, because it's like if, if it's already kind of um, known that 
Jesus is black, why amongst, you know, the people amongst this group of black people, there would be no need to keep bringing it up. I feel like this is like a, um, it, it's like a parody. Um, so I can definitely understand. It almost seems as if somebody, it, I wouldn't be surprised if, um, if it was actually ghost written by somebody who just likes to, um, consume a lot of Negro trauma drama, um, especially like reality TV shows and just, um, you know, books and stuff like that. Uh, because I feel like that's, that's what we're constantly hearing. Um, and then like, even with the whole, her, it, it seems like it's, you can't really bring up Khalil without constantly going back to Natasha. And I don't recall, I may have missed it, but I don't recall, um, uh, the author actually at least going through any type of real detail about why Natasha was actually even killed. I know that she said, you know, bullets go where they want to go. And there was a tattooed arm sticking out of a window when they were playing by a hydrant, but it's still, I'm still not quite understanding. At least to me, it kind of seems like they, uh, in the book, it, it is kind of made to seem as if um, a gang member or some, a confused black person decided to just shoot up some kids at a hydrant what was the connect why why would you just you know so i would somebody just come up to a hydrant and just start shooting at children and it, it doesn't it just doesn't make sense without either natasha having some connection with a drug dealer or a gang a rival gang member or if even if it was supposed to be a drive-by that wasn't really made clear like i said i could have also missed it but i feel like that part there's also there was also a part about the golden uh, oreo being superior that sounds ridiculous sounds like something a white person might say um when star says she doesn't deserve her racist white friends and then also the part the quote that star said to Haley um that uh you can say something racist without, and not be a racist now from this um part i'll make this as quick as possible um they constantly talk about tupac and i understand that this the, the title references tupac but it's kind of like why why are we constantly keep going over this it definitely seems cliche um then there was like that intersectionality part where um she was referencing um i think the talk between star and her dad about you know poor people um and minorities and all that um so that that that's another part um about maybe the ghost writing um the and then I, I don't quite understand the whole um, throughout the the book how she how Star is supposed to be so weak, and you have these white kids shooting up schools because a good girlfriend that girls they like don't doesn't want to um, show them affection, but Star is supposed to be weak because she has seen two of her friends die, and she, she has to live in a a, a neighborhood affected by racism, white supremacy. So um, I guess I'll, I'll leave it at that. And um, thank you so much for um, succeeding the floor, Thomas from New York. I'll meet my line. Appreciate that, Red in Nevada. Thomas in New York. Good evening, Gus. Good evening, Red and all the callers. Um, I just, I'm going to go through this real quick. Um, I think it will come out... Um, to answer Red's question, I think it'll come out that King probably did the shooting, and um, I just have a feeling that something's going to be a connection because in a book, that's, that detail would be put in there, I, I think, at a, eventually. It's like a type of thing. Um, yeah. 
it's not about racism. The book's about the hate you give infants as everybody. It's like, it's, you know, like, oh, man, it's like that. It's it what it is. It's white supremacy. Um, you know, you want to use a metaphor for it. It, it, it. Like you always say, that's metaphors. Um, they make her seem like black males aren't attracted to her. Um, they, they depicted her as this uh, very skinny and, and flat-chested and very tall, linky. I mean, um, I remember in the, in the beginning session, it didn't seem like Khalil was interested in her in a, in a way that was other than friendly. And here this other guy, you know, breathing over her neck. I'm thinking, oh, he's going to try to see. And it's like, you know, she just backs up and he's just learning. It's, it just seems like... Um, you know, this white male salivating over her, and um, these black males aren't paying her a bit of attention. It's very odd. Um, school turned into Black Lives Matter. Bunch of white people protesting. Get out of school for the day. Get out of work. Hey, we're going to go protest for uh, Mike Brown or whoever that might be. So I just think that that was um, very telling. <laughs> And I think that that was uh, very real as per how white people really view um, um, dealing with um, these protests with black people. It's just something to do. It's something to um, benefit them in some way. I wouldn't be surprised if they don't get paid for it. You know, so I just thought that that was very telling, and I thought that was very honest. And uh, that made, further made me think that it's a white person writing this book. Um and can you play honest um, being that she's um, talked about the book, um, is, is, is predicting to be herself as a, a black person so she can say those things and get away with it. Um, the last thing I want to say, it's a black cop who does all the hospital stuff. Um, the white cop is watching. Uh, that was sort of like another um, thing I think that they did intentional. Because in reality, I would think that if you have a little girl or a young lady who's witnessed a shooting, a cop-involved shooting, the last thing the police want to do is have no reason to be rolling up on them, especially when she's present. I mean, uh, by now she would have had a lawyer. This would have just not worked out this way. That would have been um, something the police would have known who it was, avoid those people, you know, but watch them. But, you know, I, I just don't see that happening, especially uh, in real life. Like, I just think that the cops would be too, um, not afraid for their jobs, but too afraid for how that would make the case look in court. You know, the DA and everybody would be like, what are you doing? You know, so um, I'll meet my line. Thank you. Appreciate that, Thomas, in New York. Uh, other folks who dialed in, again, if we have any folks who are enjoying the book, think this would be constructive for black children uh, and or if we have you know any black students boys girls you've read the book love to hear your thoughts as well other folks who dialed in with a hand up proceed hello yes ma'am we can hear you hi thank you so much for taking my call um i guess they heard she must have known someone like me would be listening or something because they doing they answered my question from last week what is the hate and one person said, watch your mouth when you cuss, and I guess that's supposed to pacify, I guess, someone like me, or I don't know, but it didn't, because it's still horrible, it's like, let's throw in this after school special moment, and then let's get back to real life, and real life is 
the police are coming after you, blah, 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 all this other stuff. So thought that, and then I was just thinking, like, you know, a lot of people talk about the negative trauma and all that, which I agree this is, and how all the, all the things she could have written about, all of the black people that do exist, you know, this is the best that she could do. And I'm not saying she's a bad writer because the image, she does have good imagery, so her, I think her writing style is actually good. She's a good, yes, technical, from a technical aspect. I think she's a good writer in that sense. But the content, it just seemed like she could have picked something else. Because the stuff that happens in real life, that she wouldn't have to make this up. She could just wrote somebody else's biography or autobiography, and I might just go VGQ or whatever. And I know VGQ, she can write about whatever she wants, but to make to make up something, and this is like the best you could make up. I don't. I still just don't understand it. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Appreciate it. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary, line should be open. Proceed. Can I say one more thing since it's dead here real quick? Um, Mr. Lewis, I think that's his name. Man, that dude's an OG, okay? He's like, it's King. They to terrorize his neighborhood. Oh, I love that character. Uh, I, I mean, I, don't, I, wouldn't, um, I wouldn't advise anyone doing that. But um, I like his story, uh, the back story, where this white boy's cutting for drinking down the water fountain. You know, like, it just, uh, to me, I like his character. He's like a... And he's not scared, you know, he gives examples of what he's been through. I've been through a war and lost my leg. I ain't scared of these drug dealers, and they've been terrorizing our neighborhood. And uh, he's just fed up. And I, I like his character. I'm uh, One likable black male character. I think we struggled to find a black male, a likable black male character from last week. Uh, other folks we've not heard from have commentary? Can I be heard? I heard. Go ahead, five, five. Okay. Go ahead. Oh, that that's for me. Yes, sir. Yeah, go ahead, five, five. Uh, greetings, everyone. Uh, first, I would start off by saying, uh, this book is one reason why I don't like ninety nine point nine nine percent of fictional uh, books. It's because although you can do it with. Uh, incidents that really took place or or things that are that are taking place you can do the same thing you can uh you know put in add in or take away on whatever you want to make up your own story that also have but but uh uh with with uh things that really did happen you can uh basically uh compare notes and study on your own and and come up with uh the reality but uh uh, I don't think that the book is uh, constructive for uh, young people because even from the standpoint of the negativity, they can get that. They can get that for the most part in their own personal daily lives as being victims of racist white supremacy. Uh, it doesn't need to be uh, put into a book because when that when that when that happens to an impressionable uh, young uh, mind, it makes it seem like it's okay. 
and racism, white supremacy is not okay. And the results thereof of non-white people, especially non-white black people who are victims of racism, is not okay. Uh, uh, So those are my thoughts uh, as far as that. Uh, This particular reading was kind of like going all over the place uh, in regards to uh, a lot of different subjects. and and also from the standpoint, I mean, why in the hell that she had to enter in into uh, this fiction with anything to be in close proximity with white people? <laughs> I mean, I've I've you know uh, have lived in uh, resided in an environment that was always at least in the ninety percentile non-white uh black people and uh also from the standpoint of uh i even went to uh a uh uh high school that that's similar to what she is explaining in the uh in the in the uh book but uh you still when you when you went when you when you came from that school you left it there and those and those people for the most part uh for evidence of that the so-called the so-called class reunions when they come up uh, it, you you have you have a black one you have a black one and a white one although I don't go to the I don't go to either uh but but I do hear about it you know you have you have a black uh reunion class reunion you have a white one it's for specific reasons because you didn't have you never had you never had a real a real relationship with those white people uh, because of the white people specifically, uh, from that standpoint, you know, and, uh, so, I mean, if, if, if either, either if someone else has written this, this, uh, book, uh, or is a situation to where it's just like a lot of things that I see on television, uh, and what young people, uh, uh, have been grasping. Uh, unfortunately, it, it, it's to popularize uh, negativity amongst us. It, it's made it popular. It, it makes it, uh, you know, hey, you, you, you're not, you're not, uh, you're not, uh, you're not with it, you know, on, on a on a top scale socially. If you're not involved in some sort of uh, uh, arguing or some kind of controversy of some type, you know, that sort of thing. That's what it, that's what it gives off very strongly. And I'll I'll hold on right now uh with my uh comments thank you appreciate that uh retired firefighter uh caller who dialed in five one three six thank you for yielding the floor did you have commentary sir yes yes um i think i i've I've been listening to the playbacks and i have to i have to agree with thomas what he said a couple of um weeks ago that Tariq did a show you had these black female uh, authors and they go on cruises and sit back and make little lustful books about white white boys and hooking up with white boys and everything that's all this is she hustling you know she she found her she found they, they, they are it's a group of them 
they found them a little niche and everything, you know, put in some derogatory, you know, it's like, it's more, it's entertaining. It's like a soap opera. I just sit back really, I listen to it getting down the road, just to sit back and listen at, see what, what you say about it, Gus. But I'm, I think it's entertaining. It's not, I'm not getting nothing constructive out of it. And I'm just sitting back. I thought I'd call in live today, but it's just, it's just entertaining to me. I know white folks wouldn't have, wouldn't have, you know, if, he, if they, if they, her parents were lawyers and everything, they, they probably would have told, told her, you need to take them, take them out the book. He needs to be a drug dealer. I believe that they, they went that they told her that and, and everything. They had, I believe what you said that they hands is all over it and everything. It's just, you know, it's just real. It's just a silly book and, like I said, it's entertaining, and I made a lot of money off of getting down the road. But uh, as far as just learning from it, I, you know, I, I live in the hood, so you know, I'm not learning. You know, some of the things that go up in, I stay in the hood, and some of the things that that go on up in, in where I live at. Yeah, you know, we don't get down. I don't get down like that, and you know, it's some is it some rough things going on out there? Yeah, but it's not. It's not the neighborhood I stay in. It's it's not. But they boys ain't out there selling drugs, and police is not running up every five minutes shaking you down. You know, I can. You know, I I just can't relate to it. You know. But um, that's all I like to share. Thanks for letting me share. Ooh, that was pretty good. I think when, as you were uh, commenting that you just can't relate to it, and I think the caller in the background said, thank God. that thought that at a few moments uh, in reading this text. Thank God I cannot relate to all of my friends being shot and killed uh, as I was growing up not the typical black experience other folks we've not heard from at all any other people that had a hand up that we missed uh completely assume we nabbed everyone uh for the time being i'll check in uh once i've shared a few comments or two uh i i will oh yes we hear someone is that red? In- yeah, I, I yeah, it was, it's red again. I I had one other thing. Um, I didn't know if I could say it or not. Uh, let's hear it. Um, the other thing. Um, I know that you had asked the question about the show being. I'm sorry, that this book being like Empire. Um, I did have the misfortune of seeing some of the episodes when I was definitely more confused, and I def- I do feel like it is is somewhat like a um you know, basically like empire in the book form and like more of on a, uh, a teenage point of view, especially with the whole LB, GTQ, whatever, um, uh, influence in it. And then I, I just wanted to say also, it seems like, um, when she lost her quote unquote white ally and Haley, I feel like this, we might be seeing a foreshadowing of her, um, leaning more towards Jess being one of those uh, quote unquote um, white allies. But like she said, she doesn't really know much about Jess. 
and, you know, Jess does the whole fist pump and her fist bump and, you know, talking about white people and why she's not actually protesting. And I feel like this is also another thing that, um, I mean, either a very confused black person could have wrote this or a white person, because it always has to be that somewhat of a white savior. I understand there's the, the part with the, with the disgusting cowbell aspect, but then also it also has to be like a, a white uh, female uh, ally as well, or a white female hero. And I'll, I'll meet my line. Thank you. Appreciate the extra uh, red in Nevada. Uh, and I guess just for the record, we still have a sizable ways to go in the text. We are not quite halfway through the book. So there's a sizable amount of anti-blackness to come, I fear. Uh, I will say it is a little bit. I'll just it's a pattern uh, that. Many of the things that are glorified, like uh, Frantz Fanon's writings, The Wretched of the Earth, uh, Black Skin, White Mask, this text, uh, quite a few things uh, that get worshipped. I'll be able to bring this up again tomorrow when we're talking about the Black Panther Party. It's the 50-year anniversary of their chapter uh, being started in Seattle, Washington. But many of these things that <laughs> I, I am at minimum uh, or at best ambivalent about and at worst sometimes I absolutely loathe like I cannot stand uh, this book and I think the same thing that I said before the degree that you see lots of black people saying that they think this book is is constructive unless I'm just way off and an error in my assessment of white supremacy just lets me know how bad this problem is which I've thought for you know a long, the whole time I've been doing this program that this problem is massive uh, the level of confusion uh, amongst non-white people that has been designed one of the major goals of racist man, racist woman, racist child to spread confusion. One of the ways you can do that with a book like this uh, to say, hey, this book is authenticated. Black author, New York Times bestseller list, still there. 38 weeks, number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Going to be made into a film. We'll teach it in the schools. Bang, the book of the Black Lives Matter movement. That's how you can authenticate a book and get a whole generation of people, really. Uh, to where they are confused in terms of what racism, white supremacy is, how it works, what it means to be white. This is just one aspect. I mean, you, in a system, you have many things that go towards that goal. But I mean, this is massive where you can get, as I said, generation, millions of children uh, to read this book and or see the film whenever, you know, it comes out. Uh, specific things that stood out uh, from this portion of the text uh, the portion with the, I guess, argument between uh, dad and mom in the house, stars mom and dad, uh, Maverick and all, I think we've talked about before. I think I've made a point before, and, and some of the listeners have as well, about Maverick. He's supposed to be Angie Thomas, the author, her favorite character in the book, Maverick. Uh, we've already talked about his, his criminal past. He's been uh, in prison. Uh, it. I've pointed out it seems that he is not uh, a powerful figure in the household as it relates to the mom. When they had the argument about whether or not Star was going to go talk to the police, the dad was suspicious and saying, no, she shouldn't do it. He lost. Mom makes the final decision. I've spoken. That's that. Nothing more to be said about this. She's going to talk to the police. I think we had the same thing happen today when they were having their argument. Maverick wants to help uh, Devontae 
get out of, you know, gangs, drugs, whatever it is. And mom is upset. She wants to get out of Garden Heights, too. And it seems like she's already made a decision maybe about where the children are going to reside and his input or whatever he says about it is irrelevant. Uh, that's the way she says it. I have already made up my mind and that's that, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you think about it, I've already made a decision about this. I think that's one that's going to be some uh, foreshadowing as well. She says, I've already made my choice. That's what it is. I think that's one to kind of pay attention to. Uh, also, and see, you know, does he have any agency in this decision? Uh, if it's coming down the road, what are his thoughts? Is he just, you know, the decision has been made. I just got to follow along with the children. Seems to be a pattern there where Maverick uh, is not a very powerful uh, person, certainly not in relation to uh, the mom in the, in, in the story. Uh, next, uh, I think I already said, I, I think uh, whites like that sort of, of nonsense where a black person uh, all of their friends uh, have been shot and killed in gang violence, not by whites. Their friends are not victims to, to anything that whites have done. Uh, their friends are just uh, victims of Negro hooliganism. Uh, continuing uh, in chapter 11, the whole jest thing, I talked about that before. To me, I mean, that's huge influence of whites, even if Angie Thomas, the black uh, female, even if she did write this book and whites just came in and asked her to, to kind of work that angle. Uh, the LGBT angle and and to keep making this comment. For me, I thought this was more dangerous beyond just uh, or it's it's not. I, no one should hear this as a Gus doesn't like this book. Gus recognizes the danger in a book like this that is a young adult novel. I just keep saying that young. This is not me reading France Fanon that's been transcribed and, you know, people take whatever they, they, you know, my criticism of the book. This is a book that is intended for young people, young black people, especially a lot of the articles that they got about this. It's got young black girls gleefully reading this book all across the country. When you read something like this, where Star is saying that Jess, again, because of her pixie cut, her perfect hair, that she just adores her and Jess had put her head on her shoulder for all of these years and she does the little fist bump thing and then she comes in and explains that she's not going to participate uh, in the protest because, you know, I don't use dead people to get out of class. And she says, uh, Star says, if I wasn't straight, I would totally date her for saying that this time I rest my head on her shoulder. I think it's extraordinarily dangerous that the cool whites in this book, put that in quotes, the well-meaning white characters in this book, the whites who seem to be the allies who understand racism, white supremacy, and are allied with black people, somehow that becomes a sexual relationship or is even hinted in that you know, vain that there's something sexual, uh, that this white person understands racism, maybe we can have sex. This white boy understands racism. Maybe we can have sex. Why is that there? If they understand racism, get to solving this problem. What not? Oh, maybe we need to hit the bedroom. No. Why would that be? And that's consistent. That's what I mean about uh, patterns. Whites do this all the time. Oh, I understand your plight. Won't hop in bed. That's how you end up with Sidney Poitier. Guess who's coming to dinner? Landmark in the history of cinema. Yes. These are cool whites. Let's cook up. Let's get married. Let's stop in bed. No, uh, that is not what we need. We've done that for years. That does not solve the problem. And to, infect again, young adult novel, infect young people with that idea. So you get them 
early on this connection between yes cool white let's go ahead and hop in bed we're working against racism that's why you have so many black people who think that's how you solve the problem have sexual intercourse with whites um the whole Mr. Lewis exchange uh, later on when the cop comes just reminded me of uh, what I mentioned it when I mentioned my slew of books and films that are a part of the Negro drama or Negro trauma drama genre. Boys in the Hood. That's it. It reminded me of Boys in the Hood. That whole scene uh, where Cuba Gooding Jr. and the cop comes. I think it's a black cop. It just reminded, like I said, I think it was Red who just said it seems like somebody just went through and it's just doing a parody of all of these Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and take a little bit from Empire, take a little bit from uh, all of the Negro trauma dramas down through the years. Just borrow a little bit from all of them and whammo, call it the hate you give, sprinkle a little Tupac lyrics in there and got our book. But back to that scene that they stole from Boys in the Hood, when Mr. Lewis comes out and is talking about we need to get King, that is also very common where he says the person that they need to get is King. He's the biggest drug dealer and all that. I'm not, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's not even about King. In a system of white supremacy, how is it that every time when it's time to name someone who deserves a beating, someone deserves a good caning, the person you need to go after is somebody black. How can that be? In the system of white supremacy, I hear this all the time. This is one that did ring true for me. That rang true in the scene where the white uh, racist children were using this incident to get out of class. That rang true to me as well. But uh, having someone, anyone, a white person, a non-white person saying that, oh, yeah, there's one person in the universe that needs to be beaten. And it invariably ends up being a black person. That is very, very common very, very, I guess that is the logic of white supremacy. But to me, if anyone deserves to be beaten or caned or whatever it's going to be, if there's some vengeance, it should be someone classified as white. Uh, yeah, the whole scene with Matt, I just don't, this stuff happens all the time to be read. Can you imagine being a child at school in California right now? We're reading this book and then we go home and Stefan Clark is all over the, I mean, why are we reading this book? Why do we need to read a book like this to just be doubly traumatized? Uh, I would, if I was a parent, I would be trying to opt out of my child having to read this text. I'll stop there. Uh, do we have other folks that we missed? Anybody who had commentary that we've not heard from at all? Hello, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Hey, man, how are you about to do? Um, I'm just, I, I've been following with this book uh, through the through the archive, man. And they kind of say, I, uh, I don't know if it if it's a black person or a white person, but you know, uh, whatever it is, you know. And you got some black people that write these type of books, like, uh, you know, like maybe like I don't want to say upper class or you know, just uh, small people. But a lot of black people believe in that type of stuff. Like, uh, you know, they try to make these books and these TV shows to, you know, like like it's really something wrong with the... With, see, to me, it seems like it's something wrong with the black people. Like, they make the books and the movies for the black people to soften up and be more accepting to white relationships and white sex. And, you know, different things like that. But, uh, man, I don't know. I don't know if you ever stopped the book in in uh, the middle of the 
the reason, but I'll vote for the move on to the next, <laughs> to the next book, man. Hey, hey, look, Gus, I want to ask you too, man, because I have been trying to call in. I, I don't read no kids down here. To, uh, I'm, I'm down here in San Antonio, Texas, man, and I've been working with these, uh, with some Spanish speaking writers. And one of them came to me a couple of weeks ago and gave and told me a, a racist joke. And I had been trying to call in on compensatory and shit, but, but I won't be having the time because I'll be on the plantation, man. But it ain't that long, you know what I mean, if, 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 uh, if y'all want to hear it or not. Uh, we are on the book club, but I do love a racist joke. Uh, if you can be quick with it. Okay, you say uh, it's it's a it's a, a school spelling bee, right? And so the white lady, so so the the the, the teacher tells asked the white girl say, how you uh to use the word in the sentence it, it, to spell the word and then use it in the sentence. So she says the word after. So the uh the white girl she spelled the word use it in the sentence or whatever. And so then she tell the black girl, she say, uh, spell the word before and use it in the sentence. And the little girl, she spell the word, then she say, uh, what she say, two come, two, two, I think you say two come before, two come before three. Uh, no, what she say? It was something like that. Two, no, two plus two be four. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, that's what it was. So that's how she used the word in the sentence. Two plus two be four. But the word was be four. You know what I mean? Got it. All right, and, and, and thank you, man. I'm gonna mute up. Appreciate that, down in. I've been to San Antonio, deep in the heart of Texas. Uh, always racist jokes. How you can analyze that right there? I would even relate that to this text. That's how whites think of black people. Black people are supposed to be ignorant. Black people are not uh, able to speak. They're not able to form uh, sentences correctly, uh, which is a lot of the same thing that I've been saying about the book that we're reading here. This is how whites think of and like to have blacks portrayed, portrayed. Uh, projected globally uh that we're ignorant stupid dangerous drug selling buffoons uh you have that's why you end up with that fight scene that i talked about earlier in the book uh where i think it was kenya it was one of stars friend i think it was kenya where they were running uh there were gunshots at the party and they're in the middle of running from that and in between all that she stops to knock a black girl upside the head like that's the way that racist that's the way that they like to think of and project get other people convinced that that's how black people really behave. That's what the niggers do. That's why we got to go ahead and beat them up and lynch them and terrorize them and bombs, everything else. Other folks that we've missed uh, completely. Any other folks who have uh, commentary that we've not heard from at all? Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Hey, uh, I wanted to uh, I'll try to be brief. I'm feeling quite nauseous. This is Jay from STL. I wanted to say that I think this book is a good example of uh, pathological blackness. So, um, and I think what you brought up, Gus, the fact that, you know, when it's time to uh, pick out somebody that needs to be hurt, that needs to be dealt with, it's another black person. Because um, when you approach um, black people with pathological notions in mind, the black people end up being the problem. 
And I think uh, this book is a great example of that. Even with Maverick, uh, a character I've been watching particularly closely, um, everything in his life that makes a change or that shifts, it all has to do with his personal behavior, his personal outlook, his uh, his uh, taking up of responsibility for his children and what he did. It's never about the system. Here we are in an age of mass incarceration on the heels of the 60s and 70s when black men threatened the political structure of the United States, right? And her father, Maverick, is incarcerated, and the words mass incarceration don't show up once. We can move inside, outside the space of, of greater confinement with black males and never mention um, the political, concerted, purposeful plan. Uh, Nixon called it the long-range master plan to lock up black men. Um, so it's those type of structural things that completely get lost. And that's why I think um, white the, the our, our sites are never any of that white people because ultimately um, black people are the problem in this book. Um, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Appreciate that, Jay. Uh, other, well, I guess if I was kind of provide some pushback, like Maverick does seem to from time to time. I think his commentary about not trusting the police from time to time seems to suggest that racism is a problem uh that white people are a problem even even in a in a very uh mild manner star uh challenges her partner chris uh, and says that he doesn't understand because he's white there does seem to be a minor challenge or indictment of you know white uh collective white abuse of black people in the book is that don't you think It is, but it, it gets distilled down into these very, very one-off interactions, one-to-one interactions. And so it, I, I think the bigger picture gets lost, even though it does get brought up. And I did hear her mention that. Um, I think but what it means to be white gets distilled into very, very, like, uh, like into accidents, like with her friend who, oh, oh I didn't know not to post that or I didn't know not to do this. Um, and, and I think that was a good example as well because on a college, I've been on college campuses here in St. Louis and the most liberal, you know, Black Lives Matter holding white people, they are on campus every day spitting race, racist rhetoric all the time. Um, but yeah, not to get off topic, but yeah, I mean, yeah, but that kind of interpersonal um, exposition and that type of thing I don't think is useful. Hmm. I don't appreciate that. Appreciate that. Uh, any other folks uh, that we missed completely or other folks that had commentary that they wanted to make sure that we get in? We got about 10 minutes before we get to audio segment number two. Uh, Gus, what did you want us to comment on uh, Black Jesus? What, what was the reference? Uh, just at this point, he's been invoked a few times uh throughout the the book we've read more than a third he's been brought up uh we've read a number of books where christianity is a significant aspect of the story uh just what do people make of the invocation of repeated invocation of black jesus in the text first i'll start off by you you, you do does everybody know uh this is supposed to be the day he got killed on <laughs> Uh, and and like uh, Dr. Francis Crest Welsing uh, would say, I've heard us say time and time again, uh, the nerve to call Good Friday 
that's the day of black this black male if if he, if it did exist uh this black male uh, was uh killed uh but uh that would uh, go along with the uh rest of the uh uh cliches and old metaphors when when uh, someone who is uh i would say plagiarizing uh uh in writing would uh throw in you know that okay well their their ultimate uh uh deity is a is a black person uh that sort of thing you know the whole idea of you know surface surface like uh, uh 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 i guess black militancy or something like that you know uh it's for what comes to my mind uh you know and uh, i'm not even sure that uh something like that even existed uh i don't even use the term myself personally god i don't even use the term myself but uh uh yeah those are some of my thoughts you know, on it. Uh, one thing about, uh, that I do notice with, uh, the, uh, religion itself, uh, in talking about quote unquote Jesus, uh, that, uh, they say that he died, uh, today and three days later he rose. But if you go three days later, you go to Monday, but come Sunday, you're going to hear about the rising being on a Sunday. So someone has a, you know, I think have a math problem with the three day thing. <laughs> anyway, uh, hopefully I made some sense. If didn't, I, I, I can, I can explain it a little bit better, but, uh, two days is, uh, Sunday, not three days from now. That's all I have to say. Thank you. May I be heard? I'll be heard. Uh, red in Nevada, then we'll get Thomas in New York. Okay. Um, I just want to say quickly, I've been already thinking about um, why the book was written, because um, I know that sometimes that's a question that's usually asked towards the end of the book, but it seemed like it, it might be like twofold if it's a ghostwriter. I feel like, you know, it kind of goes to the, um, like you've been, like I guess you've been mentioning, the whole Negro trauma drama. And so when these types of things do actually happen, like, you know, um, the victim, um, Stephen Clark, it will be like for those white people who want to claim that they're progressive, those quote unquote, well-meaning whites, so they can kind of have some little, somewhat of a backstory so they can fake like they are, are more understanding. I feel like that could be the reason why white people like it so much. And then for black people to tell, or black teens rather, to teach them to, you know, to miseducate, miseducate them from high school, this is how you, you should be acting. If it's a black female who is with a black male who has this happen, maybe you should not, you know, speak out or anything like that. So I, I definitely feel like this is, it, it might be twofold. Um, I'll, and I'll meet my line. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thomas in New York. I don't know, me and Retta is sync this evening. Um, I had to say one thing. Uh, well, actually, a few things. Um, the Black Jesus, I kept thinking, man, this Black Jesus thing, this sounds familiar with the picture. Then it hit me, Ned the Wino. I don't know if you remember that episode of Good Times where he took the picture of the white Jesus down and put Ned the Wino, and they, they started having all this good luck happening, and they started calling him Black Jesus. Either way, 
Um, I think that's where this um, Ghost Rider got that whole little idea from. Um, guess you have the best logic in the world. Um, yeah, you're right. Why King? Not all well, the white people involved. You're absolutely right. But I still like the character. I think he's funny, but you're absolutely right. Um, you know, when you talked about uh, Maverick not having authority in the household, it seems like Uncle Carlos has more authority and influence over the wife who has more authority than Maverick. So um, it seems like he's in a situation where two people um, in his um, immediate family have more control over even his um, kids' decisions than him. Um the good white people, um, I think that's with that girl who didn't go outside with the rest of them. And then there was, like, another fetish in white people um, moment. She had one earlier, but this one was uh, if I wasn't gay, if I wasn't straight, you know, I would so, you know, it was something like that she said earlier in the book. I can't even remember the exact quote. Um, and like I told you, my children do have this book. This is very non-constructive. Um and um, they have to read it for school. I, I don't know when um, they said that, you know, it's not mandatory for them to do it right away, but it, I guess before the school year ends, they have a certain amount of books they have to read. But, um, you know, I, I know that, you know, my kids would understand that this is, you know, not normal. Um, and, and, you know, the way I talk around the house, you know, they definitely are, you know, going to have a better understanding than maybe some of their friends would. So this is definitely not constructive. And with the language and the subject matter, when I was in school, and I'm not sure if they would have, well, I would, you know, I mean, I'm not sure they would have a book with nigger being used. I mean, it, it was certain it was certain things today. Like I was, and I, I'm not to rant, but um, I was in the room the other night, and a commercial came on the TV, and uh, they said uh, it was they were singing the rap song. And they said, bitches in the commercial. And I said, oh, my God, they, this is a commercial? It was a commercial, like, regular cable television. So, I don't know. I'll beat my mom. Shout to Ned the Wino. Mm. Oh, I did. That was another uh, point I forgot. The section where Mr. Lewis references King as a nigger, uh, that's another one that I'm going to pin down as uh uh, fingerprint of a racist. Uh, I think that's an opportunity where you can call a black person a nigger within the book, but it came out of the mouth of a black character, so there's not an issue. They could have done it a lot of other ways, but I, that's just been my experience. Whites seem to get a lot of enjoyment out of ways where they can in a very sly, kind of clever, covert way uh, call and reference black people as niggers. Uh, any other folks that have commentary that they wanted to share? Hello. Hello. Yes, ma'am. <clears throat> Hi, thank you for taking my call again. Um, I think you said this book came out at the end of February last year. Is that correct? Yes, ma'am. So this is the same time as the visuals Get Out came out, which was around February of last year. Yep. I don't think that that's a coincidence. Um, I see one character, that jet person, and the, um, the blind person that was in Get Out as similar characters. Crystal wants this almost like she's like if I was you know if I wasn't straight whatever almost like this white person that could possess her black body or something and of course and get out that blind man he appears to be quote unquote cool but his goal was to 
literally possessed the black body of the character. And I'm sure there's some other similarities that will come up. But I, I don't think that's a coincidence. I know all this is entertainment. You know, your kids are reading this. The parents are watching Get Out. You know, this is, of course, not a coincidence. Absolutely. There are interviews, author uh, interviews with Angie Thomas, where uh, she is asked about this book and the movie Get Out, since they both have the tragic arrangement and they came out about the same time last year and ostensibly are both dealing with racism in some way. And she gave her response uh, comparing the book to the movie. Did other folks have commentary that they wanted to get in? Anything that we missed? Can I say one more thing? Yes, ma'am. Um, so I think the reason I was thinking about the whole um, Mrs. Thomas or Miss Thomas um, having Maverick be her favorite um, character. I think that is because if she is really into the whole, um, you know, um, black female and white man type of um, situation, then in her eyes, that Maverick would be the, the best type of black man, one who can be controlled. And then she would be that strong black female that I guess she, she really wants to be. So I kind of feel like maybe that's why Maverick is her favorite. She's, he's able to play the character that can maybe give some, be somewhat less confused, but also still be controllable and um, can still be, be walked on, basically. And I'll, I'll mute my line. Thank you. Hmm. That's interesting. I have to pay attention to Maverick uh, down the street. I'd been paying attention when I heard before we started reading the book, I heard the interview where Miss Thomas said that he was her favorite character. So I was kind of paying attention to him to be to begin with. But we'll definitely be paying attention to Maverick as we go the rest of the way through the book. And I think I'm going to agree with Thomas's assessment that I think Uncle Carlos does seem to have more authority uh, in the household than Maverick, uh, which is pretty pitiful uh, in my opinion. That's he, when he was in prison. Uncle Carlos was the one taking care of like, yeah, I would I would agree with that uh, mightily. <laughs> Any other uh, commentary folks want to make sure they get in before we get to the second audio segment? If anybody liked the book, again, I would be very grateful to hear your commentary. If you think it's constructive, if you want your child to read this book or are glad your child had a chance to read this book, would be grand to hear your commentary and you know what you find to be of value uh, in the text. Uh, did we miss anybody? Everybody satisfied? I do think that the genre is constructive. I mean, it's sort of like hip hop. Uh, it's a street theme. It will catch the attention. I do think that the the subject matter is even good. It's just the way that it's written. It's, it's just not written in a way that I would have written this story. I would have been pointing out all types of racist stuff. But, I mean, I think that it's one of those things that you will get good ones and you'll get bad ones. Um, I see a bunch of young men on um, 125th Street trying to sell their books, and they're about street themes, but they have conscious overtones to them. So um, it's just like hip-hop. It's good hip-hop, and there's the bad hip-hop, but the ones that they make a big, the ones that the white people put out there is the bad hip-hop, and um, the good hip-hop still exists. Mm. 
definitely not on the good hip hop list. Uh, this one, the hate you give, in my view. Uh, any anything? Oh, never mind. We will go ahead and get started. If you do have additional commentary, just make a note, and we will have time to get to you once the second audio segment concludes. Uh, with that, we will pick up. We're starting chapter twelve. This is Angie Thomas. The hate you give context of white supremacy. Twelve. I'm luring bricks inside when it passes out front. I watch it crawl down the street for the longest time, till I get the sense to alert somebody. Daddy! He looks up from pulling weeds around his bell peppers. Are they for real with that? The tank resembles the ones they show on the news when talking about war in the Middle East. It's the size of two Hummers. The blue and white lights on the front make the street almost as bright as it is in daytime. An officer is positioned on top, wearing a vest and a helmet. He points his rifle ahead. A voice booms from the armored vehicle. All persons found violating the curfew will be subject to arrest. Daddy pulls more weeds. Some bullshit. Bricks follows the piece of bologna I dangle in front of him all the way to his spot in the kitchen. He sits there all content, chomping on it and the rest of his food. Bricks won't act crazy as long as Daddy's home. All of us are kind of like Bricks, really. Daddy being home means Mama won't sit up all night, Sakani won't flinch all the time, and Seven won't have to be the man of the house. I'll sleep better, too. Daddy comes in, dusting caked dirt off his hands. Them roses dying. Bricks, you been pissing on my roses. Bricks's head perks up. He locks his eyes with Daddy's, but eventually lowers his head. I bet not catch you doing it, Daddy says, or we gonna have a problem. Bricks lowers his eyes, too. I grab a paper towel and a slice of pizza from the box on the counter. This is like my fourth slice tonight. Mama bought two huge pies from Sal's on the other side of the freeway. Italians own it, so the pizza is thin, herby. Is that a word? And good. You finished your homework? Daddy asks. Yep. A lie. He washes his hands at the kitchen sink. Got any tests this week? Trig on Friday. You studied for it? Yep. Another lie. Good. He gets the grapes out the refrigerator. You still got that old laptop? The one you had before we bought you that expensive-ass fruit one? I laugh. It's an Apple MacBook, Daddy. It damn sure wasn't the price of an apple. Anyway, you got the old one? Yeah. Good. Give it to Seven. Tell him to look over it and make sure it's I. I want Devontae to have it. Why? You pay bills? No. Then I ain't got to answer that. That's how he gets out of almost every argument with me. I should buy one of those cheap magazine subscriptions and say, yeah, I pay a bill, and what? It won't matter, though. I head to my room after I finish my pizza. Daddy's already gone to his and Mama's room. Their TV's on, and they're both lying on their stomachs on the bed. 
one of her legs on his as she types on her laptop. It's oddly adorable. Sometimes I watch them to get an idea of what I want one day. You still mad at me about Devante? Daddy asks her. She doesn't answer, keeping her eyes on her laptop. He scrunches up his nose and gets all in her face. You still mad at me? Huh? You still mad at me? She laughs and playfully pushes at him. Move, boy. No, I'm not mad at you. Now give me a grape. He grins and feeds her a grape. And I just can't. The cuteness is too much. Yeah, they're my parents. But they're my OTP. Seriously. Daddy watches whatever she's doing on the computer, feeding her a grape every time he eats one. She's probably uploading the latest family snapshots on Facebook for our out-of-town relatives. With everything that's going on, what can she say? Sikani saw cops harass his daddy, but he's doing so well in school. Hashtag proud mom. Or, Star saw her best friend die. Keep her in your prayers. But my baby made the honor roll again. Hashtag blessed. Or even, Tanks are rolling by outside, but Seven's been accepted into six colleges so far. Hashtag he is going places. I go to my room. Both my old and new laptops are on my desk, which is a mess. There's a huge pair of Daddy's Jordans next to my old laptop. The yellowed bottoms of the sneakers face the lamp, and a layer of saran wrap protects my concoction of detergent and toothpaste that'll eventually clean them. Watching yellowed soles turn icy again is as satisfying as squeezing a blackhead and getting all the gunk out. Amazing. According to the lie I told Daddy, my homework is supposed to be done. But I've been on a Tumblr break, a.k.a. I haven't started my homework and have spent the last two hours on Tumblr. I started a new blog, The Khalil I Know. It doesn't have my name on it, just pictures of Khalil. In the first one, he's 13 with an afro. Uncle Carlos took us to a ranch so we could get a taste of country life, and Khalil's looking side-eyed at a horse that's beside him. I remember him saying, if that thing makes a wrong move, I'm running. On Tumblr, I captioned the picture, the Khalil I know was afraid of animals. I tagged it with his name. One person liked it and reblogged it, then another and another. That made me post more pictures, like one of us in a bathtub when we were four. You can't see our private parts because of all the suds, and I'm looking away from the camera. Miss Rosalie's sitting on the side of the tub beaming at us, and Khalil's beaming right back at her. I wrote, The Khalil I know loved bubble baths almost as much as he loved his grandma. In just two hours, hundreds of people have liked and reblogged the pictures. I know it's not the same as getting on the news, like Kenya said, but I hope it helps. It's helping me, at least. Other people posted about Khalil, uploaded artwork of him, posted pictures of him that they show on the news. I think I've reblogged every single one. Funny, though. Somebody posted a video clip of Tupac from back in the day. 
Okay, so every video clip of Tupac is from back in the day. He's got a little kid on his lap and is wearing a backward snapback that would be fly now. He explains thug life like Khalil said he did. The hate you give little infants fucks everybody. Pac spells out fucks because that kid is looking dead in his face. When Khalil told me what it meant, I kind of understood it. I really understand it now. I grab my old laptop when my phone buzzes on my desk. Mama returned it earlier. Hallelujah. Thank you, Black Jesus. She said it's only in case there's another situation at school. I got it back, though. Don't really care why. I'm hoping it's a text from Kenya. I sent her the link to my new Tumblr earlier. Thought she'd like to see it since she kind of pushed me to do it. But it's Chris. He took note from Seven with his all-caps texts. OMG! This Fresh Prince episode. Will's dad didn't take him with him. The asshole came back and left him again. Now he's having a breakdown with Uncle Phil. My eyes are sweating. Understandable. That's seriously the saddest episode ever. I text Chris back. Sorry, sad face. And your eyes aren't sweating. You're crying, babe. He replies. Lies! I say, you ain't got to lie, Craig. You ain't got to lie. He responds, did you really use a line from Friday on me? So watching 90s movies is kind of our thing, too. I text back, yep, wink smiley face. He replies, bye, Felicia. I take the laptop to Seven's room, phone in hand, in case Chris has another Fresh Prince breakdown. Some reggae chants meet me in the hall, followed by Kendrick Lamar rapping about being a hypocrite. Seven sits on the side of the lower bunk, an open computer tower at his feet. With his head down, his dreads hang loosely and make a curtain in front of his face. Devante sits cross-legged on the floor, his afro bobs to the song. A zombie version of Steve Jobs watches them from a poster on the wall, along with all these superheroes and Star Wars characters. There's a Slytherin comforter on the bottom bunk that I swear I'll steal one day. Seven and I are reverse HP fans. We liked the movies first, then the books. I got Khalil and Natasha hooked on them, too. Mama found the first movie for a dollar at a thrift store back when we lived in the Cedar Grove projects. Seven and I said we were Slytherins, since almost all Slytherins were rich. When you're a kid in a one-bedroom in the projects, rich is the best thing anybody can be. Seven removes a silver box from the computer and examines it. It's not even that old. What are you doing? I ask. Big D asked me to fix his computer. It needs some new DVD drives. He burnt his out making all them bootlegs. My brother is the unofficial Garden Heights tech guy. Old ladies, hustlers, and everybody in between pay him to fix their computers and phones. He makes good money like that, too. A black garbage bag leans against the foot of the bunk bed with some clothes sticking out the top of it. Somebody put it over the fence and left it in our front yard. Seven, Sakani, and I found it when we came home from the store. We thought it may have been Devante's. 
But Seven looked inside, and everything in it belonged to him. The stuff he had at his mama's house. He called Aisha. She said she was putting him out. King told her to. Seven. I'm sorry. It's okay, Star. But she shouldn't have. I said it's okay. He glances up at me. All right. Don't sweat it. All right, I say, as my phone vibrates. I hand Devante the laptop and look. Still no response from Kenya. Instead, it's a text from Maya. Are you mad at us? What's this for? Devante asks, staring at the laptop. Daddy wants you to have it, but he said let Seven check it out first. I tell him as I reply to Maya. What do you think? What do you want me to have it for? Devante asks. Maybe he wants to see if you actually know how to operate one. I tell Devante. I know how to use a computer, Devante says. He hits seven, who's snickering. My phone buzzes three times. Maya has responded. Definitely mad. Can the three of us talk? Things have been awkward lately. Typical Maya. If Haley and I have any kind of disagreement, she tries to fix it. She has to know this won't be a kumbaya moment. I reply. Okay. We'll let you know when I'm at my uncle's. Gunshots fire at rapid speed in the distance. I flinch. Goddamn machine guns, Daddy says. Folks acting like this Iran or some shit. No cussing, Daddy, Sakani says from the den. Sorry, man. I'll add a dollar to the jar. Two. You said the GD word. I too. Star, come to the kitchen for a second. In the kitchen, Mama speaks in her other voice on the phone. Yes, ma'am. We want the same thing. She sees me. And here's my lovely daughter now. Could you hold, please? She covers the receiver. It's the DA. She would like to talk to you this week. Definitely not what I expected. Oh, yeah, Mama says. Look, baby, if you're not comfortable with it. I am. I glance at Daddy. He nods. I can do it. Oh, she says, looking from me to Daddy and back. Okay, as long as you're sure. I think we should meet with Miss Ofra first, though. Possibly take her up on her offer to represent you. Definitely, Daddy says. I don't trust them folks at the DA office. So how about we see her tomorrow and meet with the DA later on this week, Mama asks. I grab another slice of pizza and take a bite. It's cold now, but cold pizza is the best pizza. So two days of no school? Oh, you're going to school she says. And did you eat any salad while you're eating all that pizza? I've had veggies, these little bitty peppers. They don't count when they're that little. Yeah, they do. If babies can count as humans when they're little, veggies can count as veggies when they're little. That logic ain't working with me. So we'll meet with Miss Ofer tomorrow and the DA on Wednesday 
Sound like a plan? Yeah, except the school part. Mama uncovers the phone. Sorry for the delay. We can come in on Wednesday morning. In the meantime, tell your boys, the mayor, and the police chief to get them fucking tanks out my neighborhood. Daddy says loudly. Mama swats at him, but he's going down the hall. Claim folks need to act peaceful, but rolling through here like we in a goddamn war. Two dollars, Daddy, Sikani says. When Mama hangs up, I say, It wouldn't kill me to miss one day of school. I don't want to be there if they try that protest mess again. I wouldn't be surprised if Remy tried to get a whole week off because of Khalil. I need two days, that's all. Mama raises her brows. Okay, one and a half, please. She takes a deep breath and lets it out slowly. We'll see. But not a word of this to your brothers, you hear me? Basically, she said yes, without saying yes outright. I can deal with that. Pastor Eldridge once preached that faith isn't just believing, but taking steps toward that belief. So when my alarm goes off Tuesday morning, by faith, I don't get up, believing that Mama won't make me go to school. And to quote Pastor Eldridge, Hallelujah! God shows up and shows out. Mama doesn't make me get up. I stay in bed, listening as everybody else gets ready for the day. Sikani makes it his business to tell Mama I'm not up yet. Don't worry about her, she says. Worry about yourself. The TV in the den blares some morning news show, and Mama hums around the house. When Khalil and 115 are mentioned, the volume lowers a whole lot and doesn't go back up until a political story comes on. My phone buzzes under my pillow. I take it out and look. Kenya finally texted me back about my new tumbler. She would make me wait hours for a response, and her comment is short as hell. It's aight. I roll my eyes. That's about as close as I'm going to get to a compliment from her. I text back. I love you, too. Her response? I know. Smiley face. She's so petty. Part of me wonders, though, if she didn't respond last night because of drama at her house. Daddy said King's still beating Aisha up. Sometimes he hits Kenya and Lyric, too. Kenya's not the type to talk about it like that, so I ask, Everything okay? The usual, she writes back. Short, but it says enough. There isn't much I can do, so I just remind her. I'm here if you need me. Her response? You better be. See? Petty. Here's the messed up part about missing school. You wonder what you would be doing if you went. At eight, I figure... Chris and I would just be getting to history, since it's our first class on Tuesdays. I send him a quick text. Won't be at school today. Two minutes later, he replies, Are you sick? Need me to kiss it and make it better? Wink, wink. He seriously typed, wink, wink, instead of two wink emojis. I'll admit, I smile. I write back. 
what if I'm contagious? He says, doesn't matter. I'll kiss you anywhere. Wink, wink. I reply, is that another line? He responds in less than a minute. It's whatever you want it to be. Love you, fresh princess. Pause. That L word completely catches me off guard. Like a player from the other team stealing the ball right as you're about to make a layup. It takes all of your momentum and you spend a week wondering how that steal slipped up on you. Yeah, Chris saying love you is like that, except I can't waste a week wondering about it. By not answering, I'm answering, if that makes sense. The shot clock is winding down, and I need to say something. But what? By not saying I before love you, he's making it more casual. Seriously, love you and I love you are different. Same team, different players. Love you isn't as forward or aggressive as I love you. Love you can slip up on you, sure, but it doesn't make an in-your-face slam dunk, more like a nice jump shot. Two minutes pass. I need to say something. Love you, too. It's as foreign as a Spanish word I haven't learned yet, but funny enough, it comes pretty easily. I get a wink emoji in return. Just Us for Justice occupies the old Taco Bell on Magnolia Avenue, between the car wash and the cash advance place. Daddy used to take me and Seven to that Taco Bell every Friday and get us 99-cent tacos, cinnamon twists, and a soda to share. This was right after he got out of prison, when he didn't have a lot of money. He usually watched us eat. Sometimes he asked the manager, one of Mama's girlfriends, to keep an eye on us, and he went to the cash advance place next door. When I got older and discovered that presents don't just show up, I realized Daddy always went over there around our birthdays and Christmas. Mama rings the doorbell at just us, and Miss Ofra lets us in. Sorry about that, she says, locking the door. It's just me here today. Oh, Mama says. Where are your colleagues? Some of them are at Garden Heights High doing a roundtable discussion. Others are leading a march on Carnation where Khalil was murdered. It's weird to hear somebody say Khalil was murdered as easily as Miss Ofra does. She doesn't bite her tongue or hesitate. Short-walled cubicles take up most of the restaurant. They have almost as many posters as Seven has, but the kind Daddy would love, like Malcolm X standing next to a window holding a rifle, Huey Newton in prison with his fist up for black power, and photographs of the Black Panthers at rallies and giving breakfast to kids. Ms. Ofra leads us to her cubicle next to the drive through window. It's kind of funny, too, because she has a Taco Bell cup on her desk. Thank you so much for coming, she says. I was so happy when you called, Mrs. Carter. Please call me Lisa. How long have you all been in this space? Almost two years now. And if you're wondering, yes, we do get the occasional prankster who pulls up to the window and tells me they want a chalupa. We laugh. 
The doorbell rings up front. That's probably my husband, Mama says. He was on his way. Ms. Ofra leaves, and soon Daddy's voice echoes through the office as he follows her back. He grabs a third chair from another cubicle and sets it halfway in Ms. Ofra's office and halfway in the hall. That's how small her cubicle is. Sorry I'm late. Had to get Devante situated with Mr. Lewis. Mr. Lewis? I ask. Yeah. Since I'm here, I asked him to let Devante help around the shop. Mr. Lewis needs somebody to look out for his dumb behind. Snitching on live TV. You're talking about the gentleman who did the interview about the King Lords? Miss Ofra asks. Yeah, him, says Daddy. He owns the barbershop next to my store. Oh, wow. That interview definitely has people talking. Last I checked, it had almost a million views online. I knew it. Mr. Lewis has become a meme. It takes a lot of guts to be as upfront as he is. I meant what I said at Khalil's funeral, Star. It was very brave of you to talk to the police. I don't feel brave. With Malcolm X watching me on her wall, I can't lie. I'm not running my mouth on TV like Mr. Lewis. And that's okay, Ms. Ofra says. It seemed Mr. Lewis impulsively spoke out in anger and frustration. In a case like Khalil's, I would much rather that you spoke out in a more deliberate and planned way. She looks at Mama. You said the DA called yesterday? Yes. They'd like to meet with Star tomorrow. Makes sense. The case was turned over to their office, and they're preparing to take it to a grand jury. What does that mean? I ask. A jury will decide if charges should be brought against Officer Cruz. And Star will have to testify to the grand jury, Daddy says. Miss Ofra nods. It's a bit different from a normal trial. There won't be a judge or a defense attorney present, and the DA will ask Star questions. But what if I can't answer them all? What do you mean? Miss Ofra says. I, the gun in the car stuff. On the news, they said there may have been a gun in the car. Like that changes everything. I honestly don't know if there was. Miss Ofra opens a folder that's on her desk, takes a piece of paper out and pushes it toward me. It's a photograph of Khalil's black hairbrush, the one he used in the car. That's the so-called gun, Miss Ofra explains. Officer Cruz claims he saw it in the car door, and he assumed Khalil was reaching for it. The handle was thick enough, black enough, for him to assume it was a gun. And Khalil was black enough, Daddy adds. A hairbrush. Khalil died over a fucking hairbrush. Ms. Ofra slips the photograph back in the folder. It'll be interesting to see how his father addresses it in his interview tonight. Hold up. Interview? I ask. Mama shifts a little in her chair. Um, the officer's father has a television interview that's airing tonight. I glance from her to Daddy. 
and nobody told me? Because it ain't worth talking about, baby, Daddy says. I look at Ms. Ofra. So his dad can give his son's side to the whole world, and I can't give mine and Khalil's? He's going to have everybody thinking 115's the victim. Not necessarily, Ms. Ofra says. Sometimes these kinds of things backfire. And at the end of the day, the court of public opinion has no say in this. The grand jury does. If they see enough evidence, which they should, Officer Cruz will be charged and tried. If, I repeat. A wave of awkward silence rolls in. 115's father is his voice. But I'm Khalil's. The only way people will know his side of the story is if I speak out. I look out the drive through window at the car wash next door. Water cascades from a hose, making rainbows against the sunlight like it did six years ago, right before bullets took Natasha. I turn to Miss Ofra. When I was ten, I saw my other best friend get murdered in a drive-by. Funny how murdered comes out easily now. Oh, Miss Ofra sinks back. I didn't. I'm so sorry, Star. I stare at my fingers and fumble with them. Tears well in my eyes. I've tried to forget it, but I remember everything. The shots. The look on Natasha's face. They never caught the person who did it. I guess it didn't matter enough. But it did matter. She mattered. I look at Miss Ofra, but I can barely see her for all the tears. And I want everyone to know that Khalil mattered too. Miss Ofra blinks a lot. Absolutely. I... She clears her throat. I would like to represent you, Star. Pro bono. In fact, Mama nods, and she's teary-eyed, too. I'll do whatever I can to make sure you're heard, Star. Because just like Khalil and Natasha mattered, you matter, and your voice matters. I can start by trying to get you a television interview. She looks at my parents, if you're okay with that. As long as they don't reveal her identity, yeah, Daddy says. That shouldn't be a problem she says, we will absolutely make sure her privacy is protected. A quiet buzzing comes from Daddy's way. He takes out his phone and answers. The person on the other end shouts something, but I can't make it out. Hey, calm down, Vante. Say that again? The response makes Daddy stand up. I'm coming. You call 911? What's wrong? Mama says. He motions for us to follow him. Stay with him, all right? We on the way. I feel like we should have like the good times uh, theme music. Dun, 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 dun. Good time. Context of white supremacy. Before I flip the pit, now I do have the Kindle, so there was not like a for real turning of the page. This is 2018, so I have the, the ebook. So as I swiped to turn the page, uh, before I saw chapter 13, my suspicion was those niggers have done it again. The niggers 
have done it again. That was my suspicion. Not 115, not racist man, not racist woman, but Negras have done it again. And uh, as soon as that, never mind, we'll get to that next week. I hate this book. It's absolutely rancid, and I don't even think it's well written. Context of white supremacy. The Hate You Give, Angie Thomas, 38 weeks as the number one book on the young adult bestseller list for the New York Times. And it is still on the New York Times top 10 young adult bestseller list after more than a year. If you have commentary you would like to share, the number 641-715-36. The number 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Everybody who dialed in with a hand up, uh, your line should be open. If you have commentary, go ahead and speak up now. Please don't wait till the last minute. I hate it when people do that. Uh, go ahead, get your hand up if you think you have something that you would like to say. Uh, we'll go ahead and start with Ivy. Wink, wink. Your line should be open. Thanks, Gus. Greetings. Greetings to you. Greetings to everyone on the line. Uh, Glad uh, this is formerly HV going by Ivy now. Uh, it's good to hear from you. Um, your commentary was absolutely excellent. As with everyone's, literally everyone's, I learned something from everything, like like something from everyone, like what they what they said. Everyone who spoke, I learned something. Uh, I had a quick question, uh, Gus, because I don't remember. Wasn't it made explicitly clear that there was like a a sexual encounter between someone, I think between the racist and star, or just between anyone in the book at any point? Chris, the white boyfriend of star, uh, they had some sort of uh, sexual activity where she was aroused to the point nearing orgasm and then he asked I think he said something to the effect of he had a condom or whatever and then it stopped that definitely happened uh, in the text okay because uh, what I wanted to say about that is that this this stuff with you know drugs and sex and violence and cursing and homosexuality like all of that is child abuse because this is supposed to be a book for minors and that first of all is promoting all of that stuff and even just uh, exposing children to this stuff and I understand children do it and all of that however that doesn't mean that you need to put that out there I mean we see just even you know examples of censorship on tv and on on radio not nearly enough but and even parental uh advisory stickers on on albums and all that type of stuff so to just make this i mean racists are truly terrorists to make this require reading you're going to require a child to read something that has this stuff in here that is child abuse and the other and, and even even promoting victims fraternizing with racists that is child abuse and also I'm really disturbed by just this, this what I would what seems to me to be sort of a trend of of, of fictionalizing the 
like victims addressing white terrorism, just like the movie um, Black Panther. We're talking about the Black Panther Party and you're fictionalizing this. And then this book right here, you know, being a novel. I mean, something about that is, it's, first of all, to me, it's trivializing it. And it's, as I said, it's fictionalizing it. And that, that to me is very disturbing because this is very serious. And I guess one last thing I wanted to add is that this, this book reminds me of, uh, I believe it's called, is it believe, is it between the world and me where Ta-Nehisi Coates is talking about his son and killing the black body and all that? Uh, yes, ma'am. We read that too. Yeah, that, yeah, I know. And it, it reminds me of that because you have all of this, you have, you know, us addressing or victims addressing being victimized by racists. And then you have that alongside of all of this violence and just this, this victimization and this perpetration that victims are doing that, you know, black people are doing. So it's like black people are being victimized by racists and then black people are victimizing each other or other people or whatever the case may be to, of course, reduce or even eliminate any sort of sympathizing with the victims who are being victimized by racists. So uh, that's, I think that's all I had. And I'll mute my mind. Thanks to everybody for listening. And thanks Gus. Appreciate that. Ivy, uh, between the world and me, ta Coates, that was another book that was very, very popular, especially amongst whites. Uh, ta Coates himself has been asked that why whites are so enamored with his work. Um, that is another book that I did not find very constructive either. We did it in 2015. It's in the archives. Nine years of the cows. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary, if we have not heard from you at all, you should definitely speak up now. Please don't wait till the last minute. If you have commentary to share, feel free. Bobby Hurt? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Um, well, I, I didn't know if anybody else, if anybody who didn't speak um, already uh, wanted to speak. Um, this is Red in Nevada. Did you want me to go ahead and... Just go oh. ahead. Okay. Thank you. I'll make this quick. Um, so it seems like, and I know I'm not sure if um, somebody's already said this in, over the past couple of weeks, but um, I guess it's, I don't want to say it's kind of getting to me, but it, it is, you know, um, it, it's once it, it's really cliche how um, uh, Khalil, he's definitely a combination of most of the more well-known um, black male victims, um, like the ones, unfortunately, who have become hashtags. And it just seems like it just constantly, it's just like, it, it, I feel like it is really traumatizing for somebody to have to read this book, especially if they knew the victims, like with the whole hairbrush thing, it, it, it's, this is, I'm like, they could have did a better job. If somebody wrote this for her, they definitely could have, you know, put a little bit more effort into not making it just, just like this. Um, once again, more, um, I, I, I guess, um, white worship, um, just how, uh, they did, um, uh, in, in this chapter, um, she did brief it, briefly, um, talk about how her parents kind of seem like Star's parents kind of seem like they're a little bit in love. Um, but it wasn't as extensive as her quote unquote love from this young white man. And so, and then I don't even know what OTP means. I don't, 
I'm I'm not a part of social media, so like the mainstream social media, what have you. So I don't even know what that means. Um, there's also I, I don't um, I feel like uh, Miss Oprah. She reminds me of Oprah, especially even how she's doing the voice, and um, and then once again like with more the little um, like cliche type of. Um, I, I would say how people say like they're woke or they're conscious. It's kind of like, you know, the conscious essentials, like, okay, well, I have to have uh, a Malcolm X t-shirt or I have to have that, the, the iconic um, uh, Malcolm X picture where he's standing by the window with the rifle and just that's supposed to be militant when it's actually self-defense. So it, it that's, that's the thing where it's like, you know, this, this is it, it's really getting ridiculous. And then the the last thing I'll say is, um, Mr. Lewis, um, with her with Star referencing him as maybe being like a, uh, a uh, turning into a meme. He definitely reminds me of the black male who was interviewed after those white women that escaped um, the kidnappers' house. I think it was like in Cleveland, um, and he was. And I'll never forget. Like there was like this one clip where he said McDonald's. And that was it. So I feel like Mr. Lewis kind of reminds me of him. And I did actually, I do have the the hard, um, the hardcover book and I did actually turn the page and it was just, just, just more nonsense, but um, I'll leave it there. Thank you for allowing me to share. I was going to say that like you actually purchased this book. I would be so mad if I had uh, like had to shell out some nickels for like even a used copy, like woo, jinkies. Mm-mm-mm. Um, Thomas in New York, if you, oh, OTP, one true pairing, uh, that is the acronym, uh, the portion where Star is talking about her parents, they're eating grapes and, uh, she is so, uh, finds them so adorable and, and she says they're her OTP, one true pairing, uh, is, uh, your favorite couple, a participant's favorite couple. Thomas in New York, thank you kindly. And back in my day, we had OTP. I don't know. Um, listen, I, when I heard this one part, it's getting borderline very dangerous for Because uh, the three most dangerous words that a white person say to you is, I love you. Oh, my God, that's good. You might never get out of that spell. Um, so I, I man, she, she's getting to the, going to the point of no return. Um I, you know, I I think the book is written by a white person trying to mimic how black people, how they think black people would write this. Maybe they had a black person, uh, you know, helping them write this or whatever, but it's just, it just doesn't seem very authentic at all. And, um, you know, I, like you said, Gus, I hate this book. Um, I think Tana Hoss's book, which I hate it as well, much better written than this book. Uh, he's very, he's a very good writer. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm on it with the ride with this book. Um, good to hear. I definitely see very, very good points. I look forward to hearing what everyone else has to say. Thanks, Thomas. Can I be heard? Uh, uh, yes, sir. Uh, Jeff, commentary. 
I'm waiting to see who gonna, who who the white hero. It's gonna be a white hero in it coming up. I'm trying to see who's gonna who's gonna be the white hero. Who's gonna push her up to go and protest, and you know, um, just gonna the white hero just like in Roots at the end they had a white hero. Uh, just like when when uh, during the civil rights movement, they they told uh, the civil rights workers to go. With, I don't know if it was either Malcolm X or Martin Luther King. They told told them to uh, well go to human rights. Go go down to the UN. You need to go for your human rights. It's gonna be so. What, uh, I believe it's gonna be at that school. When they go to that school, she gonna bring them her her white friends. And now I'm now I never read this book, but I think they she, she gonna her white friends are gonna come in and push her because she need to go out there and tell them. It, it's just like what what we go through now as black people. Now she just seen her best friend get murdered in front of her, and. She um she um when she seen it, she her parents didn't try to get her no help. It just took her in and just told her to be quiet. And that's what we do. We don't want to talk about when we've been black people don't want to talk about when when they be when we, the things that traumatize us, traumatize us. So I'm just sitting back waiting to see what you know. When 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 is the white hero gonna come in? Thanks for and uh, good to hear from North Dakota. Uh, thanks for letting me share. Relocated now to San Antonio, big big victory in Alabama. Uh, I think you have two candidates for the white hero. Uh, obviously, Chris, the white boyfriend. That would be candidate number one. And I think Jess, her other <laughs> love interest, white female with the perfect pixie cut, I uh, think would be candidate number two for the white hero. And maybe both. Uh, maybe that'll be the, the duo that uh, her OTP that gives her the confidence to step forward and, you know, do whatever she needs to do, testify. Uh, other folks. Is that going to be a white hero? It's good. It's coming. I'm waiting for it. Got your two candidates, in my view. Uh, other folks who dialed in have commentary they want to share. Appreciate that, big victim. Any other folks have uh, commentary? We get everybody. Some folks are satisfied. Uh, some of the quick notes. I have to. I said something about the food that is mentioned in the book because it's terrible. Uh, I think uh, within the main character star eating five slices of pizza, uh, within that, her mom mentions salad that she doesn't eat. Uh, but I mean, Taco Bell, pizza, Chinese food, fried chicken, where they slip in uh, a racist joke. I mean, they just had Cheetos. They just had horrible food all throughout the book. It's always just black people eating terrible really unhealthy 
gross food uh, that is just going to add to your problems. Uh, and I think that is worth emphasizing because the author of this book is like morbidly obese. Like she's uh, well over 60 pounds over her uh, healthy body well over 60 pounds over what her healthy weight should be. I mean, it clearly she is going to have some health complications and that is par for the course in Mississippi, which is her home state, having lots and lots of white people and lots and lots of black people uh, who are way overweight and have all kinds of uh, obesity related illnesses. And that is rife uh, throughout the text. I think I mentioned that before with the Cheetos. It's nothing uh, to celebrate. I even feel like some of this gets mentioned uh, with with glee almost like pride in some of the the gatherings and the food that they're eating that is just absolutely poison continuing uh, I thought in that vein the just us for justice office being in the Taco Bell former Taco Bell I thought was an especially tacky angle if racists did put this this together and if people are saying that they think this character uh, the name uh, Miss o uh, Oprah or what Oprah, uh, reminding them of Oprah Winfrey uh, and or uh, his name is slipping my uh, Reverend Al Sharpton uh, for reminding folks of that type of character, the gadfly black person that kind of comes and hops into any sort of uh, police shooting or racial strife type incident. If people think that's what it is, then that could kind of be. Uh, a low-key way of racists denigrating that character further. Uh, we're not even going to put them in a nice office, or we're not even just going to say that they're in kind of a shabby office. We're going to put them in a used, run-down old Taco Bell where people still drive up and ask them for tacos. Maybe not. Uh, also... I just think the the names like it was I think it was when you all were sharing your thoughts on Black Jesus after the first audio segment and how just the tackiness of it it seemed kind of cliche like people were just grabbing at parodies and then right when the second audio segment started Black Jesus got invoked again but it was something real trivial. It was real superficial. It was Black Jesus. Thank you, because I got my cell phone back. Her mom returned Star's uh, cell phone. Thank you, Black Jesus. And that just seemed so, that seemed like what a white person would do. Like, there's no, this is not any sort of serious connection to, quote unquote, African spirituality or even an attempt to distance seriously from racist, uh, the, the religion of white supremacy. This is just kind of a tacky symbolic ornament to make it seem like this is some sort of authentic black experience, whatever that's supposed to be. That's the way it reads to me, uh, because it just seems so. I mean, that's the only word that just keeps coming to mind over and over as I read this. It's just so tackily. Uh, it's just so tacky in the way that it's it's put together as though this is supposed to. I don't that ring true to me because, wow, this is an authentic Negro experience that I'm I'm reading about here. Uh, and the names uh, Eldridge uh, reminded me of Eldridge Cleaver, just the selection of the names like they just kind of went through and picked out names, uh, even. Yeah, just everything about it just seems very, very tacky. They went through, they watched some old episodes of Good Times, Boys in the Hood, Empire. They listened to a Tupac album or two, write this book and put a black person uh, on it to say that they wrote it, and bang. Weeks, a year later, we got a movie, bestseller, racking up, made all this money, and 
we have severely brain trashed a whole generation of students and adults, because I get the impression that a lot of uh, black adults read this book, too. Uh, we get to brain trash a lot of non-white people in the process. Maybe I'm not reading it correctly. Did any other folks have commentary they wanted to uh, share? Yes. Oh, go ahead. Oh, hang on. We we heard from Thomas in New York. Let's get retired firefighter. Oh, sorry, dude. Oh yeah. Okay. Right. 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 Quick. Uh, I was just going to uh, to indicate uh, uh, just that quick. I forgot one part of what I was going to say. <laughs> but but uh, uh, the, the the word Trixie, and, and I knew I had heard it before somewhere. Uh, but uh, back in 1972. The 1972 Olympics, uh, there was a Russian gymnast uh, that kind of revolutionized the sport by looking, having the body of a child. If you notice the the the, the uh, gymnast nowadays, the female gymnast nowadays, they they have the body of a child uh, uh, as opposed to a quote unquote woman. And and uh, she was associated with the word Prixie. Her name was Olga Corbett, I believe. And that 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 the identification of a Prixie is some kind of you know vervent, you know jumping around uh, jolly type of person that's very 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 petite uh, type of person. Was she uh, saying Pixie P I X I E, not uh, Prixie P I X Pixie P I X I E? It's a type of hairstyle P I X I E. I don't know if that's the same thing. Okay, but she did describe describe the hairstyle, right? It was short cropped. Mm-hmm. It came up came about shoulder length. I think it's shorter than shoulder length uh, from what I've seen. It's, well, a little bit higher. But anyway, this gymnast had the same type of haircut. Oh, okay. I mean, if, if you if you look look her up and, and and you will see a picture of this person I'm, I'm talking about by the name of Olga Colbert, she had a short haircut similar to what is being, what was being described. I may be saying the wrong word, but... But I think it's I think basically it's it's, it's another association. Is what I'm saying. Also, I also would include uh, Trayvon Martin's lawyer. That's what uh, Miss Oprah in the, in the book. What, what what was that, Gus? Benjamin Crump. I think that's his name. Benjamin. Yeah, Crump. yeah, yeah. Benjamin Crump. Uh, that that's another association. I think that that's uh, included uh, in somebody's mind who wrote this book. Uh, when it comes to uh, Miss Oprah, also, you know, just associating some of these people who who uh, works as a uh, assistance to non-white people who are abused in in uh, the way that uh, uh, the uh, young fellow uh, was uh, abused by the police. Yeah, that's it. Appreciate that. We'll get Thomas in New York. Did we miss anybody? Anybody that had a hand up that didn't get to share that we haven't heard from? We got everybody. We didn't miss anyone. Okay. Thomas in New York. Uh, you know what, guys? I forgot the tweet I was going to make, but 
I did find some interesting news out recently that the word nigra meant a female slave, um, and the word nigga meant a male slave. Have you ever heard that? I have not learned something. How about that? Yeah, I, I was have... looking through some slave records, and that's how they referred to the women as nigra, and they referred to the men as nigga. Hmm. How about that? How interesting. I have heard uh, some whites use it just nigra in general when they're talking about blacks. Uh, and it just sounds like uh, a different way of saying nigger. I thought it was, you know, kind of a accent thing, southern thing, whatever it is. Uh, but that is a new one. How about that? Learn, still learning. Still learning. Uh, any other commentary on the book or folks satisfied for the week? I had a question, Gus. Question from Ivy. Uh, didn't the book uh, portray uh, Chris's neighborhood as like a good neighborhood or the, just the white people, their neighborhood as a good neighborhood and the black people as a bad neighborhood? Didn't that happen earlier in the book? Right. Uncle uh, Carlos lives in Chris's neighborhood. So, yeah, there and Uncle Carlos is like the only black person and one of the few in that neighborhood. And yes, that neighborhood got described as sparkling and great and wonderful and clean and safe and the exact opposite for Garden Heights, where Star lives, the black people live. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, what I wanted to say about that is that I used to watch a lot of uh, crime mystery shows, Dateline and all that, and, you know, they used to, you know, kill their wives for the insurance money every week, and they would always say, this never happens here and all this stuff, and according to the FBI, that's where 70% of the crime is coming from, so, you know, where's all the... You know, it's just as many murders, first of all, at least that are posted publicly. Where are the murders over there? Where are all the, the, the racists who are terrorizing black people? Where are all the people shooting up? Where's their Whole Foods grocery store that has meals in the bathroom to, uh, to accommodate them? Like, and, and, all, and, you know, it's like, it's like I said, all of their, their shooting up and all that stuff. So it's like you try to make it seem like y'all stuff is just so sparkling or whatever. So I'm, I'm saying like, where, where is that? This is a, I know this is a novel or whatever, but this is just the same old racist, just lies. And so I, I just, I, I observed that. And I thought that that was interesting and I'll mute my line. Thanks Gus. Great point. Where are the uh, opioid addicts <laughs> robbing people to support their, support their historic habit? Uh, folks, satisfied anything else they need to get in before we wrap things up it was you said uh thomas in new york when you were uh speaking before i snatched the floor to allow a retired firefighter to speak uh desensitized if that helps your memory at all desensitized was a part of the point you were making if you want to give it another go or if anybody else yeah, had it. Yeah. now i'm looking at someone who's not exposed to racism you know how it works you know like like, I speak to my kids all the time. But um, it was desensitized to these types of events happening um, to read it in this manner and give such such back detail and, and things. Um, so when these events happen, just like you always say, you don't want to watch the snuff films of the black men or women being murdered and slammed on the ground by the police. You don't, you'll do choose not to work. Watch that because you don't want to be desensitized to it. So uh, I think that this reading it in such detail is going to make them desensitized. 
to the to the police brutality and the police murdering on all black men and women. Mm. And I can't say that enough. Uh, Rebecca Skloot, the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks. One of the major points that I made while we read that book, uh, written by a suspected race soldier. Uh, I don't think you will empathize with black people reading that book. I don't think you'll empathize with the Lacks family. The same thing with this book. I don't think you come away from this book thinking with a high opinion of black people. Like I said, wait till next next week to see what the Negroes have done. Now, why why did nine one one have to be called not for one fifteen? The Negroes. Uh, yeah, I just don't think that you would have a lot of empathy for black people, and I think that that would translate beyond these pages or swipes. I think uh, an incident like Stefan Clark, uh, you might be thinking, well, maybe he was a drug dealer. You know, Khalil, he was. He was selling drugs and, you know, pretty much everybody in Garden Heights in that book was selling drugs or doing drugs or prostituting or you know, like something like, yeah, I don't know. You know, it can be it can be a difficult situation. I don't know. Like, I just uh, I don't think you're going to read this book and have that high of an opinion of black people. Maybe I'm wrong. I pretty much have the same feeling about Precious Empire boys in the hood you could just fill it good times you could just fill in fill in fill in fill in depends on how far you want to go back i just don't think most of the time you're going to have a very high opinion of black people at the end of you know said text uh we'll get a final comment uh seven six five six final comment before we wrap things up hi thank you so much again for taking my call um, I think everyone's making very good comments, and hopefully, I just want to say, hopefully, the next book we read will it be a nonfiction book? Because I, I mean, I have nothing against fiction in general, but this, I think, will that be the case? I am a huge fan of nonfiction. I hadn't really thought very far down the line about the next uh, text, but generally speaking, we do about one fiction book per year on the cow. So I think this will be our one fiction read for the time being. Okay. I was just asking. Thank you. Mm-hmm. With that, we'll be here tomorrow. Compensatory call in. We'll catch up on what's gone down for the past seven days. Uh, Lots to review. Uh, looking forward, if uh, folks have commentary uh, about this book, uh, we'll still be reading it for, man, I think we'll have at least four weeks to go, probably longer than that, but at least four weeks. Uh, if you have commentary, you can write in. We'll read your comments as we go. Uh, untiljustice at gmail.com for the folks who are listening to the archives. Untiljustice at gmail.com. You should write a review for people. If you have you know, time, write a review of this book. I think that would be great. Or make a video. If you have a vlog, you could do both. Uh, you can make an audio recording. Uh, do something uh, for the people that are listening. You could even uh, just write a review on Amazon. I think that would be helpful. Uh, so many people are having to read this book. You never know who might stumble upon what you write, uh, what you record, uh, present about this book that you know helps them uh, get a different perspective as they read to maybe think in a different way about this book, particularly if it is a black child uh, who happens to stumble on what you say. So please. And if you write something, I know Thomas in New York, he wrote a review of Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. If you write a review and mail it to me, I will put it on my blog. 
Uh, I've shared uh, guest posts from other people before. So if you write a review of this book, and I should write one too, we should all write a review of this book. We should not just write for the next month about what a terrible book this is. We should write something. We should do something constructive. Uh, write a review. We'll all write a review, and then I'll have five, ten blogs. She'll never come on the program then <laughs> be like, they've got 20, 20 blogs trashing my, trashing my book, but we'll at least write something so we'll have some uh, constructive counter-racist literature uh, critique of the text. With that, we'll be here tomorrow. Compensatory call in 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Hope it was a constructive investment of your Friday evening sobriety would be best. That'll be one of the excuses uh, when racists terrorize it. Oh, you were like that, Khalil. You were at that party. You were you know, drunk and all that. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Uh, racists, they use that to their advantage strategically all the time uh, to further terrorize and abuse us. Major, in my opinion, that would be a major upgrade uh, to say, no, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to take care of our health, our brain computers, so that we can come up with solutions, concepts to permanently solve the problem. It is the weekend, so if you're going to be out and about enjoying the burgeoning spring weather, definitely be sober and certainly buckle up if you're in a vehicle, driver, or passenger. Buckle up. Let's do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Make sure I get in. Always good to uh, hear and see Mr. Demery for hope his wife is recuperating and doing well. Context of white supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>